You're listening to episode 11 of the Secret Origins podcast, featuring a new take on Power Girl and an old story of Hawkman. Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and after last episode's deviation with the Phantom Stranger times four, we're back to covering different characters with different guests. Later on, I'll be joined by Luke Giaconetti to talk about the Golden Age Hawkman. But before that, I'm happy to welcome another guest making his podcast debut on Secret Origins. From the Supergirl blog, Comic Box Commentary, it's Ange, everybody. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for inviting me. I'm pretty excited to do this. Thank you very much for being part of the show. You were one of the first people I thought of to be my guest, so I'm glad that we were able to do this. You know, this is the first time I'm doing a podcast, so hopefully... I'll be smooth and solid, and I'll be able to help uh, cover this issue. Well, if you're not, they will tell you in the comments section. <laughs> Never read the comments. <laughs> Never read the comments. I, I'm, unfortunately, I'm contractually obligated to because I have to talk about them. <laughs> okay, well, Angie, I know that you're familiar with Secret Origins, but just in case some listener is stumbling onto this podcast and doesn't know what comic we're talking about... Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. And this show is going to review all of them except for the Legion of Superhero Stories, because I can't find anybody who likes the Legion. Huh. <laughs> That's your contemptuous morning. Yes. I love the Legion. Yeah, may, many guests do, so those will be fun episodes. But in the meantime, we're here to discuss the origin of Power Girl, sort of. Cards on the table, folks. This origin is not much of a Power Girl story. It's really the story about Arian, the high mage of prehistoric Atlantis. But forget that for a moment. We will we'll get to that. Uh, I, I asked you here so we could talk about Power Girl and Supergirl. What was their connection before Crisis on Infinite Earths? Back in the mid-70s, DC decided to revamp the Justice Society of America and take a close look at Earth 2. And so they actually started to republish um, All-Star Comics, specifically looking at Earth 2, 
and that earliest uh, issues uh, introduced a couple of sort of legacy heroes uh, to the DC universe, one of which was Power Girl. She was part of the Super Squad, which was a younger version of superheroes that uh, worked with the Justice Society. That was Earth 2 Robin, the Star Spangled Kid, and Power Girl. So she was, in essence, the Earth 2 Supergirl. Um, and then, of course, later on in that series, uh, the Huntress was introduced, um, uh, and eventually those characters sort of morphed into a smaller part of Infinity Incorporated later on. So, you know, there was an Earth 2 Superman, so why not have an Earth 2 Supergirl? And she kind of showed up, uh, really, she seemed to be in sort of her late teens and early 20s in those early issues, and was sort of the model of women's lib back then, one of the sort of early feminist characters. Uh, and you can really see that in those stories written by um, Jerry Conway with art by uh, Rick Estrada and Wally Wood where she really was, you know, talking to Robin, saying, I'm my own person, I don't need the Superman symbol, I don't need a P uh, in the S-shield shape because you can't define me that sort of way. So she sort of came out with a little bit of an edge. And certainly in her relationship to Wildcat in those first couple issues, um, it seemed to be that was kind of the breaking mold because Wildcat treated her very much as an older generation would treat a young girl, and she was constantly kind of butting heads with him. Yeah, you know, he's a guy from the 40s, right? So, of course, he's going to have a very different sort of mindset than sort of somebody who is younger at that time period. You know, he's like my, you know, I can tell you things my grandfather said that would curl your toes. So, uh, so you know, I kind of look at Wildcat as, as that sort of age. Oh, I know. Is that where you first discovered the character in those All-Star Comics issues? Yeah, no, actually. My first encounter with her was in uh, some of the JSA, JLA crossovers in uh, the Justice League issues that, you know, the Dick Dillon era. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think my first encounter with her was one of the ones where sort of she and Firestorm were kind of flirting with each other. And I was like, you know, who's this girl in, in a white leotard? You know, and that was when it was, oh, you know, this is, they're calling her Kara, and it's Kara Zor-El with just an L, not an E-L as her last name. So she must be the Earth 2 Supergirl. And then you sort of go back, you know, I mean, back then it was like, you know, go to the drugstore or go to yard sales and see if you can find some back issues to sort of um, to sort of read that earlier stuff. Uh, so that was where I sort of first encountered her. And then that sort of grew, you know, of course, as you get a little bit older and have a little bit more money, then you start to, I would read the early Infinity Incorporated stuff and try to look for back issues and kind of sort of flesh that out. All of my guests on the show have been reading DC Comics longer than I have. Um, so my introduction to the character came uh, a decade or so later, because I think the first time I noticed her was probably in Kingdom Come, like in the in mid-90s. Oh, yeah. And for a while, like even after that, when I knew that she was kind of like part of the, the DC universe, before I knew that her history had been changed or anything like that, uh, for a while, I didn't like her. I didn't take her seriously because I assumed that she was just a cheesecake character. I looked at her, and all I saw was the boob window. And yeah. I don't know why, but for some reason, that probably had the opposite effect on me that it was designed to. Um, because I looked like at characters like her and at Black Canary, and I thought, okay, these are just trying to titillate me and young readers, and I don't want that. I want somebody with more substance. So it took me a lot longer to... To actually read into those characters and find the substance that was there, um, and it really was. It was that only the the more recent series by Justin Gray, Jimmy Palmiotti, and Amanda Connor. Um, I picked that up just on a, a lark because uh, I was like, well I, lo- "Well, I liked 
the Supergirl story that they told in Wednesday comics. Yeah. So I was like, all right, same creative team. They're doing a character similar. Let me give that a shot. So I picked up like issue four of their Power Girl. Loved it. Went back and collected that series. Um, so it was really it was them that made me a Power Girl fan. Yeah, it's funny, you know, because I think that she's always been Supergirl, but with a little bit more of an edge to her. And different people have um, thought about that edge and portrayed it in different ways. So in, like, Justice League Europe, um, in the early issues, she was really, like, hardcore, hardline, almost angry all the time. And then uh, in Justice Society, uh, JSA All-Stars, the recent comic by uh, Sturges and Williams, she was like a leader and almost like, you know, she was now the mentor for people like, um, oh, what's the tornado girl? Uh, Cyclone. Cyclone, yeah, it right? The, it was the Red Tornado Legacy, but they called it yeah. Cyclone. Yeah. And um, and she would say things like, you know, I'm strong and I'm a leader and sometimes people call me, you know, a bitch or call me the B word. And that's because it's hard for women to be like this. And so she was trying to inspire them. And so her edge was like, I really have to, like, stand out to be a leader because I'm trying to promote women to feel comfortable to do that, which has always been part of sort of her underlying, you know, again, that sort of women's lib stuff that came out early. And then when Pamiati and Connor took over, it basically, it wasn't a humor book, but like her edge was more like, you know, her rolling her eyes at everything that was happening around her. And so she had this sort of almost sardonic or sarcastic sort of view uh, at the superpowered world around her. Right, putting uh, up with the day's annoyances. Yeah, exactly right. You know, oh, my cat is pooping on my carpet. And then this guy is coming down and wants me to mate with him. And like, what's all that about? And those issues are fantastic. I mean, I'm so happy that they're doing Harley Quinn and Power Girl, that sort of miniseries that's coming uh, out now. And they're basically ignoring the Power Girl that's on Earth 2. They, you know, they say somewhere in it like, oh, you're that other Power Girl, right? They're just, you know, you know, putting their hands up at continuity and saying, we're writing the Power Girl that we want to write. Right. Yeah, good for them. Because <laughs> I, I think that's probably the Power Girl that more people want to read. But. No, exactly. I mean, you know, I started to read World's Finest with the Paul Levitz Perez stuff because, oh, this is, you know, Power Girl that was truly Supergirl on Earth 2. We actually saw her in a Supergirl outfit. And that kind of comic just seemed to lose its way. And now is, you know, I haven't read that book in a year and a half because it seems to really be mired in that grim, bloody, dark, you know, despondent uh, sort of comic that, you know, you have to be excellent for me to buy into that, and it's just not there. Yeah, I think when when the main continuity, the Earth 2 continuity, and the Injustice video game tie-in all felt like the same voice and the same tone... I think you've gone astray at some point. It, um, no, ex- exactly right. Like, I've always looked, you know, growing up, uh, you know, Earth 2 was always like, oh, it's a simpler planet, and it's, you know, people are inherently good there, and, and there's, uh, you know, almost like a patina around it that makes it sort of more comfortable. Uh, and then, you know, in the first issue of Earth 2, you know, people are getting blown away and killed and and you're exactly right it's like in injustice superman puts his fist through somebody's chest and in world's finest superman is a dupe of dark side and you go boy we really have gone off the rails here i liked the idea that they were trying to make it a wartime setting um because it felt like they were trying to go back and say okay when these books were published in the late 30s early 40s 
America was at war, or they were staring at a war that they were about to get into. Um, so you wanted to kind of create that tension. You wanted the feel of a world war that would take everybody coming together to fight it. I just think it was a dumb idea to to basically do more of Dark Side and the, the New Gods, which had already been done. And I thought there there was a better way to approach it, um, and it didn't have to feel like they were always on the losing end of the war. But yeah, I mean, even in those early world's finest stuff, you know, when now Huntress and Power Girl have been transplanted to the main DC universe, you know, initially there was this feeling of like, oh, you know, this Power Girl is sort of like a, a more of a Supergirl analog, where she's happy and optimistic and bright, and she's a good contrast to the Huntress, who's this dark and brooding daughter of Batman, and so there was sort of a world's finest tension there. But then it became this whole, we're going back to our planet, and you know, Superman has become this slave of Darkseid, and, and we're going to go into this deep war that I felt that it, uh, it kind of lost its way. To say nothing of it, like, they introduced them because that world didn't have a Superman and didn't have a Batman. And then within a year, they broke that promise and they created a new Superman and a new Batman in that world. Mm-hmm. So it's... Yeah. 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 So, okay, well, we are going to take a short promotional break and we'll be back in a minute with the all-new, all-different origin of Power Girl. So don't go away. Greetings, podcast listener. Do you like... Or maybe... Dragon Flame! How about... Tatsuo! Ganido! Or... In the year 1999, an abandoned alien battle fortress crash-landed on the planet Earth. Our most brilliant scientists and engineers spent the next ten years reconstructing the damaged ship and studying its highly advanced space technology called Robotech. Do you remember... Our Star Blazer! Or this? The year is after Colony 195. As the world constantly changes in the chaotic era, there are two mobile suits that could turn humans into the ultimate weapon. The Wing Zero and the Epion. Or maybe even this. After the desire for blood pools all, the only hope left is the one they call D. Or this. Gene, grappler ships dead ahead! It wouldn't be fun otherwise! Let's do it! Or... If Cardus is allowed to be reborn, she'll destroy Marmo as well as Lodos! Or have you seen the latest episode of... And just like that, everything changed. At that terrible moment, in our hearts, we knew... Home was a pen. Humanity... If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you should check out Anime Freaks, hosted by Dr. Bill Robinson and me, Gene Hendricks. Anime Freaks is a monthly podcast covering all things anime. It is available at 2TrueFreaks.com and on iTunes under 2TrueFreaks Presents Anime Freaks. We're back with Ange, and we're looking at Secret Origins Issue 11. This issue is cover dated February 1987, but according to Mike's Amazing World, the on-sale date was November 13th, 1986. The cover, by Jerry the Extraordinary Ordway, shows Power Girl and Hawkman flying side-by-side in the night sky above a city. What do you think of this cover, Ange? 
you know, I, I'm a big fan of Ordway, uh, and so oh yeah, he'll make anything look good. For me, it, it's not as grabbing as I hoped it would be. I think Power Girl looks great. She's smiling, and she's sort of flying with Hawkman behind her. But Hawkman, I think, it's hard to see his face. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm, uh, maybe I'm being too critical here. No, I agree with you. There's something about it that just that I that I think hurts the cover, and I I can't grasp what it is. It it might be how large the text is for their names. It feels like it's, it's crowded. Yeah. Um. And when you have these two characters flying out in the sky, there should it should be there should be a lot of room. It should be a breathy kind of airy cover, but it it feels a little bit claustrophobic. Um. Yeah, and they also seem like um, a little bit static. Like I would. You know, there doesn't seem to be a lot of like, oh, they actually are flying. It's almost as if they're just stuck in amber. And I think maybe that's also what I'm trying to deal with here. Well, are you ready to take us through the story? Sure thing. Okay. So this story is called Ancient Histories, and it's written by Paul Kupperberg, with art by Mary Wilshire, lettered by Albert de Guzman, colored by Carl Gafford, with Robert Greenberger as the editor. The story opens up with a pretty dynamic splash page of Power Girl stopping a bank robbery that's happening in the background as she's flying away. But the text says that she's a little bit troubled by what's going on in her life. She says, I don't exist anymore, and I should just get back into my box and not be a bother to anyone. She then, sort of in her mind as she's flying away, reviews her history of Krypton. She actually was around the same age as Kal-El, which is a little bit different from many of the other versions of her origin, and she's placed in a rocket by Zor-El and Allura, but her rocket has a different sort of path towards Earth, a slower path, uh, and so she actually arrives on Earth uh, 60 years after Kal-El has landed. She has been maintained in what she calls a symbioship where she has been fed an artificial reality, but over the course of those 60 years, she's only aged 20 years. So when she arrives on Earth, she's 20, but Superman is the middle-aged Superman of Earth, too. Unfortunately, something happens called the crisis, and so she again reviews how now that the crisis has happened, her entire history, her entire Earth, has been uh, wiped out of existence. And so people don't seem to know who she is or what her origins are, and she has a hard time explaining it because nobody remembers the crisis except the heroes that were there. In fact, the only thing that seems to have also survived her planet and her history is the symbioship. And so she goes back to her symbioship to kind of think about her history, and quite angrily, as she's sitting there saying that, you know, she's doubting her own sanity because of the fact that her history has been erased, she, you know, hits the panel of the symbioship. And hitting that seems to activate something. She's hit by a wave of magical energy and caught in a force field. And an image of Arion the Sorcerer appears in front of her. He calls himself her grandfather and then says that he's going to take her back in time to her real origins. We then have a period in the story which is a flashback to Atlantis from 45,000 years ago. It's a time where magic is dying and Arion is the leader or one of the leaders of Atlantis, and he is showing the young children of Atlantis some parlor tricks, which is all of the magic that seems to be left. 
Suddenly there's an explosion at the nursery within the city where his granddaughter, Kara, is uh, being cared for. And as he runs into the nursery, he sees an image of his evil brother, Garn Dinuth, who Arion had banished to a place called the Dark World uh, in an earlier battle in his own title. But Garn is able to use Kara as a relative of the family to try to worm his way back into reality. He says to Arion that the genetic manipulations that Arion had done to baby Kara um, has allowed him to use her as a gateway to the planet. And he is going to use her to open up the... The, a portal between the dark world and this world and allow basically hell to take over Atlantis. In the midst of that, Arion asks one of his friends to run to his desk to get a crystal paperweight, and that crystal turns out to be the very soul of one of the most powerful of the seven gods of Atlantis, someone named Calcula. And Arion somehow uses that crystal to both uh, drag his spirit and Garndanuth's away from Earth and as a way to keep Kara separated from Garn to fling her into the future. Knowing that she would have a hard time relating to a new planet, he looks to the future, sees Superman, and implants a whole lifetime worth of memories into her head so that when she awakes, she'll believe that she's Superman's cousin. But now that she is asking for the truth of her life, he tells her that he can now reveal this true history of her. She is, you know, his granddaughter from Atlantis from 45,000 years ago, and there is a legacy of magic within her. He makes her belt buckle become sort of the magical symbol of their family, and at the end she says, now I know I am a real orphan, but an orphan with a past and a family and roots. And so she says that she will now move forward with uh, understanding who she is much better. And (laughs) that is the new origin of Power Girl, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, you know, uh, hopefully I did this story some justice uh, as I tried to truncate it. There's a lot of filler stuff in the middle about Arion. There's four pages of material that basically look at his supporting cast and talk about some of their past adventures. And so as a result, the Garden Denuth part, which seems to be the most important part, is sort of, you know, shrunk to just a couple of pages and almost uh, insensible when you try to figure out exactly what's going on. Yeah. Uh, I w- I didn't like this story. Um, I, I'm not I'm not even going to be more more delicate than that. It's a 16 page story, and I thought the first 10 pages were pretty boring. Yeah, you know, I think that it, you know, Kupperberg, uh Arion was Kupperberg's creation, mm-hmm. and of course, Kupperberg wrote Supergirl in her solo series. So I think he kind of took over the mantle of like, oh, I'll become the next Power Girl writer. And I think that this was almost his love letter to the canceled Arya, right? He's like, oh, I had stories to tell about Arion, and maybe I can use this story as a way to let the, his fans know what happened to that place. And it's like, how many fans are there? <laughs> and plus, this is supposed to be, you know, we really don't even get a chance. I would have much rather seen her reaction to learning all of this. Like, it's... It, it seemed a little bit quick for her to just say, oh, everything that I've known about my life has been a lie, but now I have relatives from 45,000 years ago. Hooray. You know, uh, I feel like there could have been more time spent on her and her reaction to everything that's happening. 
Yeah. It's not Power Girl's story. It's just her learning this dramatic retcon that I think you're right. It was it was Paul Coverberg saying, I, I wanted to write Ariana a little bit more. And then he went on, he, he wrote more. He wrote Power Girl's series that came, or the miniseries that came after this, I think. Yeah. Um, and they did need to do something like this. I mean, they, they one of the reasons that Supergirl was killed off in Crisis was that in the new continuity, Superman was a loner. He was the only Kryptonian. So they had to change Power Girl. But this, yeah. is, this is still a weird way. I mean, it's it's making her magic-based. But they, they also, like, it's a weird setup because she is remembering the pre-crisis continuity that shouldn't exist. So that doesn't feel like it can be a hard reboot. But then they explain that it's all just, it was a hallucination. Or it was a false memory. Yeah, you know, as you said, they sort of wrote themselves into a corner a little bit when they decided that Power Girl was going to survive and Supergirl was not, but they didn't want there to be a Supergirl who was a Kryptonian, so they, they had to rethink, who is she? And uh, and so you're exactly right there. You know, they let's go completely different. Let's uh, have this be a magic-based character based upon one of our other properties so that we can kind of separate her a little bit from Superman. But it is in my notes, you know, at this point in time, I'm and even now, like who remembered the crisis and who remembered the pre-crisis world and all of those. You know, she says, "Oh, only a handful of heroes remember what happened in the crisis." But I can understand why early on in the story she's like, "I feel like I'm going insane because uh, because everything is gone." But I suppose that there could have been some better way to tie her into the DC universe than linking her to Atlantis from forty-five thousand years ago. Trying to think like what the alternative. I mean, my go-to thinking would be uh, doing something like a clone because that's what they did in the Justice League animated series. Um, or, but, but then that that almost feels like it's it was borrowing from the Matrix Supergirl idea. Yeah, I mean, you know, the easiest thing, you know, in the in the Superman animated series, she wasn't from Krypton. She was from a sister planet in that galaxy called Argo. Yeah, uh, and so you could have said. Oh, let's kind of rewrite the Monel origin story where she, you know, is a Daxamite who landed on Krypton right before it exploded and then has to sort of get sent away. So she's a Daxamite who thinks that she's Kryptonian. I suppose that, you know, this is the post-crisis world and you're trying to sort of, uh, you know, rebuild the foundation of the DC universe. And so maybe they're trying to say, oh, we want this to feel like there's a history here. And by tying it into this other character, who maybe people remember from the early issues of the crisis, maybe we can sort of build up, you know, a stronger new universe uh, by trying to tie everything in. Right. There was no history. Now there's a little bit of history. Right. Uh, okay, going through the story, the the first thing I noticed, I really liked the art in certain places, especially I liked the way Mary Wilshire depicted the faces of Power Girl, and especially in this first page. Um, but I'd never heard of her name before, so I, I looked her up, and according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, Mary Wilshire had less than 40 credits in professional comics, and, and only two stories published by DC. Wow. Um, she she had this story, and then it looks like a backup story in The Outsiders issue 14. Um, everything else she did was for Marvel, and she did Red Sonia issues, she did Barbie issues, um, and uh, some scattered other things. Yeah, I really like the art as well. Um, you know, it almost has sort of like a pencil-y feel to it. It's not heavily inked, yeah. and I agree with you. Um, her depiction of Power Girl is great. She really makes... Um, 
you know, it's going to sound strange, but I love the way she draws hair. You know, it's like every lock is its own defined, uh, you know, uh, segment of the hair. And it's, you know, when she stands up, the, the hair moves as though it, the way it should move. Yeah. Um, and then when you add her expressive work, I agree with you. You really get a, um, a good feel for what the character is thinking uh, uh, throughout the story. That first page, I love this shot of Power Girl. Now, Part of it, okay, you know, points for having it an overhead shot looking down her shirt. Um, and Power Girl is known for one thing, perhaps, mo- mo- over all other things. But this really cements the idea that I like Power Girl with a regular sort of low neckline. The boob window is funny and it can be cute, but ultimately it's pretty dumb. And I think you get the same idea, less distracting, if she's drawn this way. Yeah, you know, she kind of at one point morphed to the sort of scoop neck, uh, and I agree with you. It becomes less, um, what do I want to say? Um, it's less provocative, right? Because I think that when it's a boob window, it really is like, oh, that's a target that my eye should definitely be going for, yes. right? Whereas now it's like, oh, she's in a leotard like a gymnast would wear. You still get the sense of her figure, but it doesn't seem to be as salacious. Right, yeah. she She's well-endowed, and that's obvious, you know, people of different shapes and sizes and certainly, it's superhero comics they lend towards a specific body type for males and females Um, but yeah, like when when it's the boob window, then it's like, okay, that is the first thing you are supposed to look at to their credit, some writers have tried to make that a, a joke and make that a point of distraction, it's deliberate it's, it, it helps her enemies underestimate her but that's still pretty forced, and I, I think it diminishes the character a little bit more. Again, it's one of those reasons why I didn't like her for a long time. Yeah, you know, I think Pamiati and Connor seems to have a way that they were able to, you know, have it be a little bit uh, funny. And even in the um, in the Jeff Johns JSA classified where he tried to redo her origin, yeah. you know, she was like, wow, look at Jimmy Olsen. He's not looking there. And then eventually, like, Jimmy Olsen succumbs, and she's like, oh, he's looking there. But I think that it's like you say um, – it becomes almost like too recurring of a joke, right? Like at some point, she has to say "eyes here," you know, "eyes up," right? Uh, to, like almost every issue, and then it just becomes tiresome. So, right. you know, I'll say for me, you know, one of the most interesting things again, right? Because I'm coming at this from a Supergirl fan, is that you really get a nice page of her life on Krypton. You know, now they've played up. Um, you know, for Supergirl, uh, her original origin is that she was born on Argo City and grew up to be a teenager there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in more recent history, Supergirl has been, oh, she was a teenager on Krypton and was rocketed away. So technically she's older than Kal-El and she sort of takes a more circuitous route to her. Here, she's almost the same age as Kal-El, which I think is uh, very interesting. I didn't know that until I sort of reread this issue. And I have to be honest, unless somebody tells me differently, I think this is the first depiction of her parents, the Earth 2, Zor-El, and Nalura. Uh, so I thought that that was fascinating to me as well. Um, I, I don't know. What do you think about this whole thing where she, you know, she grew up to be 20 years old in a symbiote ship that fed her an, uh, an artificial reality and I guess gave her nutrients, right? Because she, she starts out as like a six-month-old and then she's like a college grad. So that at first I kind of thought it was a mistake because I thought Kupperberg was almost treating her as the Supergirl of Earth-1. Then like when he when he's, says deliberately that she was in cryosleep for 60 years – 
I was like, okay, then that puts her that that would put the destruction of Krypton way back in the beginning of the 20th century, where it would be on the official publication timeline. I was like, that sounds like he's he's confusing her with or with the Earth Two continuity, which should no longer exist. And yeah. then you get to the next page, and it's like, oh no, she is remembering that Earth Two continuity that should no longer exist. So I, I was kind of like. All right, it feels like if he had just treated her as Supergirl, because by the end of the story, you're going to say that these, these aren't real memories anyway. These were just false memories. But if he had just treated her in, these, in the beginning like it was Supergirl and kind of stuck to that history with that timeline of, on Earth-1, then you don't have the confusion of she's remembering a universe that should not, uh, on the new timeline, should never have existed. I, I agree. And, and, you know, you really have to kind of just say, OK, so it was a 60 year flight, but she aged 20 years. And yeah. OK, I guess I have to buy that. And I suppose that if I'm buying that there was a planet galaxies away and, you know, that that you have to suspend your disbelief a little bit. But then I'm sort of saying, like, how did she eat? Like, how did she get that? Figure, right. You know, I mean, like, I don't see IVs anywhere in her. So I don't know. Maybe it was just in the air that she got proteins. Uh, so and again, as you say, like, you know, when this is all over, oh, OK, it, no, it, it shouldn't make sense because it was uh, Atlantean sorcerer trying to make up a history for her. Right. But that whole page, I was like, boy, I really have to kind of, you know, OK, that happened. And I'm just going to say that that happened the way that it's described to me and not think about it too much. But that still brings up a by the end of the story, okay, so it's not a symbiote ship dry, like flying from Krypton. It's this magical container thing that, like, this thing that's bringing her forty-five thousand years into the future. Yeah, what would be our present? She is still growing from an infant into a voluptuous young woman during that time. How is she growing? How? Why is she developing this way for this period of time? Like, what? What is the the, the transfer, like, uh, like what is the scale here? 45,000 years equals 20 years for your biology. Yeah, I suppose it, uh, it just uh, speaks to people who read comic books that more easily able to swallow her being nourished by magic than I am by science, uh, <laughs> which I think is ridiculous now that I say it out loud. But I agree with you that um, was this part of Arion's plan that he was going to push her forward to be away from this uh, villain, but that she would grow to be 20 years old as opposed to just blipping her into the future and having her appear in the 20th century as an infant and being raised in the future, uh, which I think is just, I guess that's just one of those things that you have to say, I don't know, maybe he didn't know that that would be the way that it would play out. Um, Cause why would he deny her her childhood? That doesn't seem like something a loving grandfather would do. Yeah, this can't have been exactly what he planned when, like, in his desperate fight against his brother when he sends her into the future. Like, So this has to be somewhat incidental, but then why doesn't he contact her before? They, they, there's just a whole lot of questions about this. Yeah. That, that ultimately, by the end of it, they're like, okay, these questions don't matter. This just she's she's the power girl that you thought. We're just saying that her power comes from a different place. She has magic and this genetic tampering that Arion did with her. That's part magic based and part ancient arcane science based, um, and that's why she can do the things that Superman can do. But it's not an alien physiology. I, I don't know. 
Yeah, I think it, it is. It's pretty tricky, you know, and, and I think that Cumberbatch tries to sort of answer those questions, right? He says, I crafted a history for you which involved him and magically implanted it within your memory as you grew. Um, but then he also says, you know, at some point, I sensed you, your need of the truth, and so now I'll tell you the truth. But you're exactly right. Like, at some point, couldn't he have just said when she woke, like, oh, hey, just so that you're aware, this is what happened? Um, as opposed to building years of her life on a lie? I think it's tricky, and probably, you know, this is, you know, Kupperberg trying to make, you know, a silk purse out of a sow's ear, like, how do we explain power crawl? <laughs> and he's like, all right, I'll just kind of make something up and hope that people deal with it. This is my only experience with the character of Arion, the Lord of Atlantis. I've never read that series. I mean, short of Crisis on Infinite Earths, but honestly, I don't remember him in Crisis. He didn't leave an impression on me in that story. Um, so I, actually, I went back and looked it up, and he first appeared in a backup strip in Warlord issue 55, which came out late in 1981. Uh, the Arion backup lasted eight issues before spinning into an ongoing series called Arion, Lord of Atlantis. That came out in August 1982. And that series lasted 35 issues before coming to a conclusion in Arion, Lord of Atlantis special number one. Uh, and that came out the summer of 85 during the Crisis on Infinite Earths. And Paul Kupperberg created the character and wrote every one of his appearances except those in Crisis. Yeah, you know, in Crisis, you know, he's one of the people that Harbinger brings to sort of help fight the shadow demons, and he does absolutely nothing. I think the biggest scene he has Wait, is... Wait, oh, has, is he one of the guys gathered in the beginning? Yeah, he's one of the oh, people wow. in, like, the first three issues trying to, you know, um, protect uh, the tuning forks, but... The biggest moment. Uh, I don't even. I'm, I don't even remember him in that group either. He left such a yeah. little impression on me. Well, this is he. He really had nothing to do. In fact, the his most famous scene in that is he's like, okay, I'm going to use magic to make a bridge of ice to go from one mountain to the other that breaks in the middle of it, and so he's plummeting to his death, and Harbinger has to like teleport him out. Um, so he he really had very little to do. I'll say that you know um, it was around this time that Kupperberg was putting together like a four part story in that title that was called something. Like you know, it was the end of magic, and it and the art was done by and I'm going to slaughter her name, uh, Jan Duresma. Dur- I think it's Dursima. Yeah, and her artwork in that book, like I actually bought that four issue like story within that title, and her artwork is just absolutely beautiful in that book. Um, but uh, it was canceled shortly shortly after that. So I have, like, a little bit of knowledge. So I kind of understood, like, when he's talking to this woman, Mara, and she's talking about this character, Wind, who went off, and what about Lady Cheyenne, who Arion married? Like, I kind of had some understanding of those characters. But I don't think you needed to know those characters to read this story. So when Kupperberg kind of does like three pages saying, oh, you know, water was going to destroy our city. So I sent four groups of people out to try to reestablish cities and I haven't heard from any of them. It's like, I don't need to know that here. <laughs> you know, uh, I guess he really just wanted to have like some sort of wrap up. Uh, so, you know, as we talked about before, that maybe he was just like, oh, I have so much more for this character. I'm just going to try to shove as much of it as I can here. One of the things that I thought was funny was that, you know, uh, he keeps the soul of the seventh, one of the most powerful of the seven gods of Atlantis as a paperweight on his desk. You know, do, does he even need a paperweight? <laughs> you know, and, uh, and I'm Dick just thinking, move, like, Arian. 
Yeah, I'm like, that's the most ludicrous thing. Like, put that in your pocket, right? Like, it's the most powerful magic item left in a place where magic is dying, and you keep it as a trinket on your desk. And what's even more ludicrous is that, you know, he's like, get me that paperweight. And even Danuth is like, what, are you going to throw bric-a-brac at me instead of, like, using spells to fight me? I was like, that seems like a little bit crazy. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Do you have other thoughts or notes about this story specifically? Um, you talked a little bit about how he did genetic manipulation of his granddaughter. So, you know, you, at the end of this, it's like, oh, he, he was a loving guy because he saved her. And then I'm like, wait a minute. He genetically tampered with her. He denied her her childhood. He fed her a lifetime worth of false memories. I don't know about this guy. Like, maybe I should be thinking about him differently. Um <laughs> Uh, but otherwise, I think that we should have covered everything else that I was thinking about um, about this story uh, in and of itself. All right. Well, Secret Admirers, if you are a fan of Arion, the Mage of Atlantis, please write into the comments section and tell us why. <laughs> um, in the meantime, uh, let's move on to other things. Let's talk about Power Girl and Supergirl. Um, yeah. So one of, the th- one of my favorite little moments, you know, I – talked a lot on my blog about how I really love the Peter David Supergirl series um, and so that's the Matrix Supergirl and at one point she has um, an adventure where Power Girl ends up showing up and they fight the extremists and the Power Girl in that story has this great line where she says I think people hated me because they thought that I was replacing you but you hadn't even been around yet for me to replace, right? Which I think is Peter David commenting on the crazy continuity of the time, right? There's a two-year gap between the end of Crisis and Matrix becoming Supergirl. And in that time, all of these Supergirl fans are like, why did Power Girl survive and not Supergirl? I hate that character. So I did sort of love, David had a great way of sort of um, putting in little continuity nods about Supergirl's history in the Matrix um, series. Uh, And in the end, they become, you know, like, oh, look, we're two blondes that are fighting. And she was actually, you know, she had the Arion belt buckle in that story. So that was sort of the first um, meeting of those two characters. Subsequently, you know, when the Matrix character goes away and Jeff Loeb brings back uh, Kara Zor-El as the cousin of Superman, very early on in the Supergirl story, they meet Power Girl and Supergirl, I think in like her second issue. I think at that point, maybe there was a feeling that she actually was somehow a Kryptonian from another universe, because when the two of them come together, there's this, like, backlash that they can't be near each other because somehow the universe knows that something is wrong, that there are two of them. And so when they meet in that issue, of course, the first thing they do is try to beat the snot out of each other because of this, like, oh, they become enraged because of this, like, universal sense that they shouldn't both exist, Um, which is then completely forgotten because they later on have a team up where they're like standing right next to each other trying to save not the bottle city of Kandor but like the pocket dimensional city of Kandor which was again in those early Supergirl issues where I really hated both the Supergirl character uh, and liked the Power Girl character more so uh, they had that and in the end they end up uh, splitting up and really being angry at each other because they went to this place to sort of free these citizens from this like fascist and Supergirl ends up taking off she's like oh they promised me that I could maybe find my parents I'm out of here and so she leaves and Power Girl is like that's not what heroes do so they meet up there. And then in the New 52, they, uh, you know, again, now 
Power Girl is the Earth 2 Supergirl. And in one of the few early issues of the New 52 Supergirl that I like, they actually meet. And there's really a, a wonderful interaction between them because they realize, you know, the young Supergirl realizes that Power Girl is the old Supergirl. And so she looks at Power Girl and is like, really, that's what you wear? You know, you've got this boob window? And don't you think that looks like a little young for you? And she's like, wait, I got this out of your closet because my costume blew up. Why did you have it if you didn't think that you would wear it? So um, so there is actually a good sort of two or three issue storyline between the two of them there. You know, I really have sort of a love-hate relationship with Supergirl a lot of times because DC like brings her back and they're like, oh, we're going to make her dark and angsty and gritty and, and it never works. And then they're like, oh, you know why it doesn't work? We need to make her darker and more angsty. And then that never works. And then finally they like bring back somebody like Sterling Gates or, you know, later on, um, Tony Bedard and Kate Perkins who are like, no, we got to get back to like who Supergirl is, that she's like young and optimistic and wants to be a hero um and that always seems to work and then invariably they cancel the book <laughs> so so supergirl has a very uh tricky uh history and i like when she interacts with power girl because i do think that there's an interesting dynamic there i think the and then maybe it comes down to the editors and the, the creative side of the the books now have a very negative view of teenagers and maybe they all have teenage kids that they hate because it's not just supergirl the teen titans characters all of their young characters have been treated really poorly in the last five years like they've either been killed off or they've been turned into versions that are unrecognizable and unlikable and yeah i I think bob harris or whoever like is in charge of running this thing just he he hates his teenage kids yeah, you know, he's taking it on. That's how he thinks. That's how he thinks all kids need to act, and that's what kids want to see. Yeah, you know, the people who are in charge of those teenage characters are guys that wrote for Marvel in the '90s, right? So you've got Scott Lobdell and Tom DeFalco and Bob Harris, and then they put out publicity pieces where they're like, "Oh, have you ever made a teenage girl? They're hell on wheels. They're they're more they're they're as likely to fight their friends as they are to fight their enemies." And it's like, boy, that's a really bad view of teenage girls if that's what you think. And then it's like you say, you know, it's like Wonder Girl is like, "Oh, I was a uh, you know a very sexualized art thief who stumbled across a uh, you know an item that made me who I am and you know Supergirl is like I hate Earth that's filled with sweaty people on a mud ball that's very backwards in comparison to Krypton and so you're exactly right it's almost as if they all either were you know treated badly by teenage girls when they were teenage boys or they hate their kids because they're all very much negative people even superboy you know i read the superboy title for a short period of time and he was like i'm a living weapon designed to kill people and then in one issue he goes you know what i've decided that i'm going to rob a bank so he robs a bank and and then like sets himself up in an apartment that looks like what Kanye West would live in and and people were like no, you know, like, we read superhero comics so that they're, like, heroes. Like, he just robbed a bank and, like, loaded down his apartment with stuff. You know, what are you trying to say here? <laughs> so it really is. They, they, I really feel like they don't have the right people writing young characters. And yet that has got to be their target demographic. They are trying to get 11- and 12-year-olds to read their books, and that's the only ones they care about. They are not banking on, or maybe they are expecting that the people who've been reading the books for 30 years are just going to keep on reading them, and maybe they are. But 
so many of the changes, like the, their edict that heroes couldn't be married because marriage leads marriage leads to stability and a lack of conflict in the character's life. It's like, have any of these guys been married? Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> do, you, do you know what kind of conflict comes from an everyday marriage? Yeah, that's to, true. To say nothing of one of the guys trying to like one of them trying to put on a costume and foil. Like super crime? Yeah, it's funny. I think even, you know, Dan Didio at one point said something like, well, you know, heroes should never be happy because, you know, when they're driven to do what they do. And it's like, boy, if you have a whole universe of heroes who hate being heroes, that's not really a good universe. <sighs> right. And that stems from their most popular hero, Batman, not being happy for the last 30 years. Yeah. Because of the way they've depicted him as this dark, brooding obsessive who can never be never be satisfied with his job, let alone happy about what he's accomplished. And I think that's because he's the one that makes them all the money in the world. They think that's the winning formula. You know, I mean, just to get back to Supergirl, right? When you look at this new 52 run, it really is, it's relentlessly dark to the point that they make her a Red Lantern at one point, right? And you yeah. go, boy, you know, Supergirl has a Red Lantern. That's you know, that's really going against the grain. And then what's funny is that, you know, when I read that story, Tony Bedard decided that, you know, I'm going to make this a redemption story. Like she, this is as low as she can possibly get. And she realizes, you know, this is not what I want to be. And actually comes out of it much more positive and says like, okay, I'm going to adopt earth as my home. And then the next crew comes on and it's, you know, Kay Perkins and um, Mike Johnson again. And she's like, okay, I'm going to go to this like Hogwarts in space, but I'm going to be like a leader for the next generation and show them the right way to do things. And I'm going to try to become a hero. And you go, boy, you know, finally, after like three years of relentless drudgery, they finally have an understanding of what's going on with this character. And wow, they're going to make a television show show out of it that looks like it's going to be positive and so what do they do they cancel the book right uh, so i just think it's hard to you know wrap my head around what dc does sometimes it's, let's talk a little bit about the the supergirl tv show let's just speculate because it's it's fun i saw the five minute promotional uh teaser spot that they released a couple months ago and I, I was nervous about the show I, I was really worried about what kind of supergirl they were going to present but that little promo that they released hit everything that I wanted from the character. I think the show looks great. Yeah, I am 100% with you. It, you know, I had the same thoughts. It's like, boy, I can't believe in my lifetime I'm going to see a live-action Supergirl show. And then I said, oh boy, what type of live-action Supergirl show am I going to see? And then you see that six-minute preview and you're like, boy, this is about as close as they can come, I think, to hitting all of the beats that I want in Supergirl. She's young, she's optimistic, she's learning, she's kind of a little bit of a dork, right? Um, she's trying to prove herself to the world. She's, you know, Superman is in her life as a role model, but he doesn't seem to be, you know, this oppressive shadow that she's trying to get out from under. I just thought everything was spot on. And, you know, I if you read my blog, you'll know that I absolutely loved the Sterling Gates run. You know, seeing that six-minute thing, it was like, boy, they probably read those trades and said, this is what we're going to imprint on. She'll be a little bit older than the character was in those stories, but even the look is just the way uh, Jamal Eigel drew her as uh, Linda Lang in those stories. When I first found out that they were casting a little bit older and they were making the character, I think she's supposed to be like 23 or 24. Yeah. 
I, w- I wanted them to go a little bit younger, but the problem with that is if she is still very much Supergirl, then you need Superman to be a fairly consistent presence. Um, and they just they just couldn't do that. They, they can't have Superman in the show while they're trying to promote him in a different movie, even though they're trying to do the same thing with Flash, but those are worlds apart. So I, I knew that Superman was just going to be referenced but not seen in the show. And if Supergirl was still young, if this was her first time arriving on Earth, then you have to have him there from her beginning to kind of establish who she is and be that mentor figure. So I like that they were making her a little bit older. She's able to stand on her own a little bit. But you're right, she still has that youthful energy. She's still a little bit of a dork. I like that from everything that I've heard, their audience is girls. Like, they're not just going for the fanboys. Yeah. Fanboys will appreciate the show because it's super, it's superheroes and they like that. But this is very much their, their, I think their target audience is girls. And you can see that if, again, don't go to the message boards, stay away from the message boards. But if you read those, it's full of people who loved, you know, the dark Knight and the dark Knight rises. And they're like, this show looks like crap. It's too campy. It's too girly. Why would I want to watch this? It's like, okay, you're not the audience. So don't watch it. No, exactly right. I mean, a couple of things. So first I'd say that I'm glad that she's not very young because I would worry that it would become Dawson's Creek, right? You know, um, it's like, let's move away from the high school um, as being the location of the story because we already have Smallville and we already have Buffy and we should just skew a little bit older. So I was fine with that decision. But it's like you say, you know, hey, if you want to watch Gotham, watch Gotham. Right. If you want to watch Arrow, watch Arrow. The Flash is not Arrow or Gotham, and that has been embraced. And, you know, you could do a six minute trailer of The Flash that looks like it's a romantic comedy because that's all about his love for Iris. And is she going to love him back? And she's with Eddie and Ronnie and uh, and Caitlin. And, you know, uh, and so I think that you can have that sort of emotional, you know, subtext and still be a great superhero show it's just now it's you know a female lead and you're going to look at that viewpoint so i agree with you that i think that you know they they want to they're marketing it to the right crowd i don't want you know a brutal you know dark supergirl i don't want her in Zack snyder's movies at all so um so yeah i don't don't even want superman and batman in Zack snyder's movies (laughs) yeah i don't want Zack snyder movies but (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was a little bummed at first when I found out that it wasn't going to be in the CW because I liked the interconnectedness of their world. In fact, if you want to talk about Superman, Batman, if you haven't already, watch the Flash episode World's Finest where it's the first time Flash and Green Arrow team up. That is them writing a Superman and Batman team up that you'll never see in the movies. Yeah. Um, they, that, that episode was just phenomenal. But I really liked when I heard... Um, I think I think it was Greg Berlanti, maybe Andrew Kreisberg, but one of them said it was in the contract specifically that Melissa Benoit could show up in those other shows. And CBS is kind of distancing that from that. I think I, I don't think we'll see it right away. I think the first year it's just going to be her on that show, and they might not have like a crossover where you have to watch both episodes on both shows to see that. But but Greg said in in the contract that he signed when he was making the deal with CBS that the character and the actress playing her could appear on Arrow or Flash or other CW shows. And they're both owned by the same company, so there's a lot more wiggle room. 
Yeah, and you know they're they're done by the same production company, yeah, so yeah. certainly you can sort of try to cross pollinate. And there's even I think it was a cover of Variety where they had uh, Melissa Benoist and Grant Gustin next yeah, to each yeah. other in costume. Yeah, yeah, and and that just looks like it would be fun. Like there was one where they were pretending to race, and and you just go, boy, like you could do so much by bringing those two universes together that it would be just spectacular. But I agree with you. I think that there's some concern, like when you read uh, a lot of the articles, it's like, you know, this is a, a young girl superhero show on CBS, which skews older. And so I, I agree with you. They're probably going to say, let's do one season, stand on its own, make sure that we have an audience, and then we can start to maybe spread out a little bit and sort of uh, reach out to other shows. But then again, I have no idea how they calculate ratings and everything. Like, I, I don't think the Nielsen's amount for anything anymore with with how much streaming is done. I think, I, and actually, I know for a fact that a lot of networks don't look at the ratings for the first night of that an episode airs. They have some way of calculating like how often the episode is viewed over the next four days because they take into account DVR, Netflix, yeah. Hulu, and other other forms of viewing like that. I mean, I don't. I don't. The only thing that I watch on television on a regular, I have Sports Center on. Other than that, when I'm watching a TV show, I'm watching it through a streaming service of some kind. You know, my work schedule is about as chaotic as anybody. Yeah. So I live on the DVR, and for Flash. You know, that was, oh, when I'm home on a weekend morning and I'm, I'm watching it with my kids, right? So I never watch it live. It's always a couple of days later when we're sitting on the couch together, you know, eating breakfast. So yeah. I, I think the show will probably be as successful. It will find the group that it needs to attract it to give it some longevity. Um, I don't think it will suffer the same fate that Constantine did. And Constantine, for, for all the fans who loved that show, I know there are a lot and they tried to get it back. The problem with Constantine was that that show needed to come out 20 years ago. Because what made that character awesome in Hellblazer and, and in the Swamp Thing comics decades ago was that he was the, the asshole British genius who knew who was the smartest guy in the room, and that's the only reason why you liked him. Because he really was kind of a rude son of a bitch. Yeah. The problem is that character is on every TV show now. <laughs> It's on, it, like like the House made that the norm, and then you yeah. see that with the Sherlock with Benedict Cumberbatch and all the spinoffs of that. That character isn't unique, and the the monster of the week, the supernatural things that they dealt with in that show aren't unique anymore. There's five other shows that you can find on television that look and sound just like Constantine. You know, it's funny. I read, you know, Constantine when he was in Swamp Thing when that came out. And I read those early issues of Hellblazer when they came out. And I liked that they were using the first year of Hellblazer as the template because a lot of those stories actually matched up quite nicely. But it's like you say, you know, there are hundreds of those characters out there now. And part of, I think, the charm of, of Constantine was that, you know, he always said he had no power, right? There was always this feeling about him like, oh, my gosh, what is he going to do? And he didn't, you know, he wasn't Dr. Fate. Uh, and in the, the show, he just always had like, oh, look, I've got the eye of Agamotto, just what I need right now to defeat what's in front of me. And it's like, no, what is this, like Walmart? You know, you just like go and have a magical item on you that does exactly what you need. So I do think that uh, they sort of struggled in trying to figure out, like, what is his power set? Does he have one? Right. And it is so. Yeah. Well, I think if we're talking about the Constantine V show, we've probably strayed as far from Power Girl and Arium that we can get. 
Um, do you yeah. have Do you have any recommended readings for people who want to know more about Supergirl or Power Girl or Arian? Yeah, so I'll say for um, for Supergirl, if you really want to go way back, there were those showcase trades that really show her like earliest adventures. They're a little bit dated, but they'll give you a good foundation of what her character is. Currently, I would say uh, any of the trades that uh, have Sterling Gates uh, written as the, uh, or listed as the writer um, is really going to give you a good is a good, really going to give you a good read. Uh, and in particular, uh, the Bizarro Girl trade, I think, is sort of the high water mark um, of that group. Otherwise, the, actually, say for the new Fifty Two Supergirl, the the Red Lantern trade is probably going to give you a good understanding of who she was because you learn all about how she reached that point, and then you sort of get the end when she sort of comes out of it. For Power Girl, I would say the first four issues of JSA Classified, which I think is collected as a trade, so that's Jeff Johns as writer and Amanda Connor as artist, um, is him trying to explain her convoluted history and try to sort of come out the other end about who she is. Um, and then any of the Pamiati Connor stuff. I just thought that was a big win. Actually, I, I was looking into this. Both of those series have been collected together. You can get a trade that has every Power Girl story drawn by Amanda Connor. So it's the it's the four series the four issue series by Jeff Johns, and then the first twelve issues of the book that was written by Justin Gray and Jimmy Palmiotti. Um, no. all, all of those have been collected together now. So I would definitely recommend those. Yeah, if I'm going to recommend one thing for Power Girl, it would be that. I mean, that is probably a killer trade. All right. Well, thank you very much for being part of the show, Ange. Uh, where can people find you online if they want to hear more about your thoughts on Supergirl? Uh, I run the Supergirl blog, so that's Comics Box Commentary uh, at blogspot.com. I know it's a horrible name, but that was the one I came up with seven years ago when I didn't know what I was doing. Um, I also am a, uh, a contributor to the Legion of Superbloggers. You can read my reviews of the five-year-later run uh, every Friday morning. Um, and if you want to hear my random thoughts about things, I'm on Twitter at Drange, Dr. Ange 70 at Twitter or okay. at Drange 70. And if people are confused by comic box commentary, enter Supergirl blog in a Google search and yours is the first one that pops up. So pretty, oh. pretty streamlined, simple. Yeah, thanks. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you very much for being on this episode and thank you for making your podcast debut with the Secret Origins podcast. Uh, we will definitely get you back in the future to do another episode. Thanks for inviting me. I hope I held up my end. You absolutely did. All right, folks, we're going to take a short break, play some commercials, play some tunes, but when we come back, the origin of Hawkman. Hi, my name is Teresa. And my name is Rebecca. Do you like Supergirl? We do, too. And we're super excited to bring you a fan podcast devoted to the upcoming Supergirl TV series on CBS from Greg Berlanti and Ali Adler, starring Melissa Benoist as the Girl of Steel. Check in with us every week for news and discussion about the last daughter of Krypton. Supergirl Radio. Your source for all things Supergirl. Soaks you to the bone. Maybe I just wanna fly. 
are back to discuss the secret origin of the Golden Age Hawkman. And my guest for this segment comes from the Hawkman blog, Being Carter Hall. It's Luke Giaconetti. Welcome back to the show, Luke. Oh, thank you for having me back on, Ryan. After, uh, after the last time when I think the consensus was, wow, I hate Halo, but Luke was okay, I'm glad that you decided to have me back on. <laughs> Well, I wanted to give you the opportunity to recant your affection for the outsiders if if you wanted Never. to if you wanted to join the popular I, I haven't I haven't been a popular kid ever. I'm not gonna start now. That's uh you know <laughs> it, it served me well these these years as a comic book fan. I'm not gonna change the course right now. I, but I, you know, I, admitting you're a fan of Hawkman may not really help in that department either, so <laughs> Well, on this at least, we're simpatico, because I love the character of Hawkman. For as long as I've known who the DC characters are, he has been somewhere circling my top three favorite DC heroes. And it's almost, it, I would say it is entirely about his look. I love the mm-hmm. look of this character. The design, the wings, the helmet, the mask, particularly the way it was kind of redesigned by uh, by Joe Kubert in the in the Silver and Bronze Age. It it hits some primordial part of my soul that just like yes that is a that is a great character design. Oh yeah, I mean my my first uh, exposure to Hawkman was the Superpowers Collection toy, mm-hmm. and I have an older brother, and uh, I don't I don't some some listeners may may understand this when when you're growing up and it's just two boys when you have action figures you got some that are your guys and some that are his guys. Absolutely. You know, and so Hawkman was one of his guys. Mm. So I never got to play with him, but I always liked Hawkman. He looked so neat, especially in, you know, his, his superpowers guys were just such a classical look for him. Uh, so I always was attracted to the character visually, like you were saying. Uh, I Growing up, I was always a Marvel guy. I was not much of a DC guy, but right around uh, 1992, 1993, I started expanding my horizons and started reading more DC. And that was when volume three of Hawkman started. And so between the, the classical look of Hawkman with the feathered wings and then the volume three look, which is the black body suit with the golden wings, the yep. golden metal wings, I, I just fell in love with the character. Now, being 13, I was also dumb as a brick. <laughs> and I got the first two issues of volume three of Hawkman and then, then immediately moved on to something else because I always, you know, when you're 13, you're chasing every hot trend, especially in 1993 when there's a new image book, you know, uh, every month that's the next big thing kind of thing. But uh, Of course. But, that was before I kind of settled into my fan identity a bit. And then I, you know, I got back into Hawkman during JSA in mm-hmm. the in the early 2000s with the return of Hawkman specifically and so that was kind of how I fell into it and uh you know I started being a fan from JSA and then it got to the point where every time I'd go to a show I'd walk up to a random long box and there'd be Hawkman books staring at me. And it's like somebody's trying to tell you something. One of the, you know, the seven gods and seven devils of Thanagar are telling you something here, Luke. But it's like, no, I'm not going to do it. I've already got, you know, I've got a huge Iron Man collection. I've got a huge Flash collection. I don't need something else. And finally, my, my, my very good friend Adam uh, called me one day. He was at, this is back when he was living down in Atlanta. He was at a one-day con in Atlanta. And he calls me and he goes, Luke. They got Showcase Presents Hawkman Volume 1 for 7 bucks. You want it? And I, and I, I sat there and I stared at the phone for about a good 15 seconds. Like, am I going to do this? I said, <laughs> yeah, pick it up for me, Adam. So that, thus I started down the path of Hawk fandom. <laughs> you know, sometimes uh, it's, it's like from the beginning of uh, 20 Million Miles to Earth, sometimes large things start with small things. Yes. So. <laughs> Well, I had my story 
all ready to tell, but I think you stole all of my important <laughs> beats. Um, because like you, I have an older brother, and he got all the good toys first, like starting with the, the Star Wars toys. He got to figure out which Star Wars characters were his and which ones were mine, and then which of the early G.I. Joes were his, mm. which were mine before he grew out of them. I got some of the early superpowers uh, figures now, I never got any of them fresh on the package from the store. I got yeah. a handful of them like as hand-me-downs, and most of them were in bad shape or they didn't have their capes or anything. I actually joked with Tom Panarese that it was like five years before I realized that Robin had a yellow cape. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but one of the figures that I did have that was in good condition was that Hawkman toy. Mm. And I just I loved it. It was my favorite of the bunch. And it just and then around 1989 when Batman came out and every store in the world had like a Warner Brothers merchandise section. There right. was all sorts of Batman graphic novels and T-shirts, and there was like a Warner Brothers store in a mall and it had this T-shirt with you know five heroes on the front and five heroes on the back. It was all like stock art. And one of them was Hawkman. And I, as soon as I saw that, I was like, I need that shirt. And then the same thing. Like when I was starting to get into you know comics in the early 90s, I would always try to sample DC, but nothing was really holding my interest. But one of those books that I did follow for a couple months was that same volume three of Hawkman. Yeah. And as much as I loved the, the classic look, I also really, really dug the, the black leather and the gold wings look. Yeah. Um, it was just a cool sort of neo-futuristic take on the character, which, of course, being a kid who was digging the X-Men comics of the 90s, that was exactly what I was into. So when I was making my decision to, to do a, a fan blog devoted to a character, uh, Hawkman was at the top of my list. Even though you had being Carter Hall, I was like, ah, is there room enough for two? <laughs> um, and there probably would have been, but I, I decided to go with somebody who wasn't, didn't have as much exposure. So I went with Black Canary, and I've been yeah. regretting that decision ever since. No, <laughs> don't say that. Yeah. Canary's awesome. And, and yeah. hey, you know, she's got a heck of a lot more exposure yeah. on media than, than Hawkman does, and, and will continue to do for the foreseeable future, it looks like. so. Well, some news out of San Diego Comic-Con is that Hawkman might be appearing in the show, too, the Legends of the uh, oh, I, I have I have no doubt that he will. One of the, one of the great ironies to me of Hawkman in the modern context mm -hmm. is that so many that, that and this is something I, we talk about in the blog fairly often is that Hawkman was the, he was the originator of the, the concept as far as DC comics. There's, you know, you mm -hmm. could talk probably a whole two hour podcast about how Hawkman, what he owes from flash Gordon and from different, you know, right. classical science fiction sources. But the character as a superhero, Hawkman was the, you know, started it. And then Hawkgirl came on, about um well Shiera was there right from the beginning of the golden age but it was somewhere in the 20s of flash comics i think that she first put on the costume herself mm -hmm. there's there's one in there in the 20s where she pretends to be hawkman which is actually kind of funny because <laughs> everyone's like hawkman you, you look different you know <laughs> but uh but be that as it may one of the great things about the hawks is that there's a great economy because you know, a lot of times with a superhero, you've got the hero and his sidekick and his love interest. Mm -hmm. Well, Hawkman and Hawkgirl, they're the hero, sidekick, and love interest all rolled up into two. Yeah. You know, so it was, they have a great dynamic, and they always have the, the married couple that also happens to, you know, check weapons out of their museum and beat the living crap out of the Matter Master every couple of weeks. <laughs> uh, but because of Hawkgirl's exposure in JSA as uh, Kendra Saunders, as a... As a a Hawkgirl completely divorced from Hawkman for almost two years, coupled with 
the extremely popular depiction of Shayera Thal over on the Justice League cartoon. Yeah. There's a lot of people that don't give two flips about Hawkman, but really like Hawkgirl as a character. Mm-hmm. And and that's that to me is one of the great things about the Hawk fandom is that you know it's it's kind of like uh, I I don't want to turn this into a Batman discussion after the last episode I was on <laughs> that kind of t- grew on its own but kind of the same idea that with the Bat family say if you like Batman okay there are all these corollary characters that are related in the same family to Batman like Nightwing or Robin or the Huntress or what have you the Hawks don't really have that they have kind of just a a, a pair a duo. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like you can like Hawkman, you can like Hawkgirl, you can like them both, but they they work great together, but they also work great independently. So I have no doubt that they'll probably do something with Hawkman on Legends of Tomorrow. But I love that they're leading with Hawkgirl. Yeah, because you want to talk about, you know, the you know, they, they always bemoan, oh, they're, you know, like a character who uh, all the, all these uh, these superheroines just wear bathing suits and, uh, you know, they're they're out there to look sexy. It's like I, I remember when. Uh, what is what is her name? Is Sierra Willis? I think is is the uh, the actress playing her. I'm probably getting that wrong because I'm not looking it up. Mm-hmm. When I saw the first picture of her, they released her kind of her headshot, and she's smiling. Mm-hmm. And I said, "Well, we can't judge how she's going to look as Hawkgirl until we get a proper snarl on her face." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the wrong look for Hawkgirl. Yeah, it's like maybe maybe if she's smiling and there's little flecks of blood on her or something, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, like like Hawkworld Sierra, you know. <laughs> So, I, I mean, that, that's one of the great things is that, you know, for, for a character that's had as, as bizarre a history as Hawkman, and, and Hawkgirl's been along for the ride for a lot of that bizarre history, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, you got two characters that just have a, a look that is fantastic. And there is something about that, especially in a visual medium of comics, that when you have that great look, that you're going to get attention, you know, and it's going to draw people in to read you and, and to read about your adventures, so... All right, well, let's talk a little bit about the publication history for this character before we get to his origin. As always, I've got my notes, and when I'm done, if there's anything that you feel like I forgot or I need to add, let me know. Hawkman made his first appearance in Flash Comics number one and went on to star in all 104 issues of the series, generally alternating cover appearances with Jay Garrick Flash. In his civilian identity, the Winged Wonder was Carter Hall, a wealthy research scientist with a thing for collecting archaic weapons. In his first appearance, Carter discovered that he was the reincarnation of the ancient Egyptian Prince Khufu. Khufu's lover, Shira, was also reincarnated, as was their murderer, Half-Set. Less than a year after his debut, Hawkman appeared in All-Star Comics number 1, and would then appear in all 57 issues of that series' original run as part of the Justice Society of America. Creation for Hawkman is generally credited to writer Gardner Fox, who may have gotten the idea for the character by watching a bird swoop down outside his window, or the editor, Sheldon Meyer, who saw the Hawkmen creatures on the Flash Gordon comic strip. Dennis Neville drew the first couple Hawkman adventures before Sheldon Maldoff stepped in and took over the strip with issue four. And then in 1944, Joe Kubert took over the Hawkman strip and drew most of the characters' appearances in Flash between issue 62 and 104. Like many Golden Age heroes, Hawkman faded out of publication in 1950 and remained unseen for a full decade, really. During the Silver Age, new versions of Hawkman and his wife, Hawkgirl, were created in The Brave and the Bold. Instead of a reincarnated Egyptian prince, the Silver Age Hawkman was an alien space cop named Katar Hall from the planet Thanagar. This Hawkman and Hawkgirl came to Earth searching for a fugitive and ended up staying to study human police practices. 
The new Hawkman and Hawkgirl became regular members of the Justice League of America, while the original Carter returned when the JLA crossed over with the JSA of Earth 2. And for years, we had two Hawkmans who looked and acted more or less identically, until the history-altering after-effects of the Crisis on Infinite Earths demanded some changes to their continuity. At which point, the 1989 miniseries Hawkworld completely screwed up the character's history, leading to <laughs> retcon after retcon after retcon, resulting in one of the messiest, most chaotic characters in DC Comics. And we can talk more about those changes later on, but did you have anything to add to the history up to this point when the origin story came out? No, the, the only thing that I would add is, and I talked uh, a couple of years ago at Heroes Con, I got a chance to talk to Tim Truman. Hmm. And uh, and, and you know, t- Tim's a very great guy. He was very generous with his time. And uh, I think he was kind of tickled by the fact that I brought the three issues of Hawkworld, and I think everyone else who came to see him was bringing Conan stuff. Yeah. So I think he was just a little tickled by that. So I got to talking to him, and I said, what do you remember about the genesis of Hawkworld? And what Tim told me at the time was that the original idea for Hawkworld was that Gardner Fox was going to write it, and it was going to be much more Silver Age. And that uh, Truman was originally only going to be doing the art. And he was, you know, him and Gardner Fox had uh, passed notes back and forth, and he was going to, you know, consult on it. But it was going to be Gardner Fox's story. It was going to be the kind of utopian Thanagar that we got in the Silver Age, but, you know, with with the kind of more realistic look that Truman's uh, artwork would bring to it. And he said, unfortunately, before any work really started, that's when Gardner Fox passed away. So he said the, the series languished for a little bit, and finally it just came down to, well, why don't you do it? And so he started, to, well, what kind of story would I tell with Hawkman? And so that is how we got Hawkworld, which revised Thanagar from this utopian sort of planet that it was in the, in the 60s uh, into the dystopian, you know, uh, where you know, as above, so below. Uh, planet that we got that kind of informed the uh, the post crisis depiction of Katar Hall right up until his death, right at the end of Volume Three of the series. So I always thought it was interesting that Hawkworld was not intended to be this massive change. It was intended to kind of not change the origin so much, but kind of change Thanagar more than anything else. And that's why Hawkworld ends with Biff, a fugitive from from justice fleeing to Earth, being pursued by the two Thanagarian policemen, the two Thanagarian wingmen, Katar Hall and Shea Thal. It's the exact setup from the beginning of the Silver Age plots. Mm-hmm. So that was originally the intention. And, of course, the other thing is something that was always intended was on the first page yeah. <laughs> of Hawkworld was to say five years ago. So that it would be an origin and they could say, okay, this happened five years ago. Now here in the present, we're at the present time. This is, you know, but but unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, because the Hawkworld series itself is, is so good. DC loved it so much. They said, no, 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 no. You can't do that. This is the new origin. He just arrives on Earth now. Go with that. And so that's what led to Truman and John Ostrander handling the Hawkworld ongoing and the developments that came out of that. So. And unfortunately, I, that just every Justice League story that preceded yeah. that then had to be altered. Right. And and that's that's the funny thing is that putting in Hawkworld as the modern origin messed up a whole lot of Justice League stories. Mm-hmm. But by the same token, what they eventually retconned away from Hawkworld by Jeff Johns' origin got rid of a whole lot of stories too. Yeah. So it's 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 you just kind of kind of take it as it is. Look at the present and not the history. Uh, on being Carter Hall, I have a I have a tag every time I review a comic called Generation. Mm-hmm. 
where I say, okay, this is the Golden Age Hawkman, Silver Age Hawkman, whatever. That one's fairly straightforward. Then there's a tag that says incontinuity. <laughs> and nine times out of ten, it's either no or a question. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> just uh, like a meme of you just throwing your hands up. <laughs> eh, like Alfred E. Newman. But <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, uh, let's let's get into Secret Origins issue 11. First, before we talk about this origin story, did you have any thoughts on the cover? I like the cover quite a lot. Um, first off, anytime Jerry Ordway's drawing Hawkman, I'm down with it. Mm. I, I, I love how dynamic he looks in the musculature. Uh, but the only thing that's kind of a downfall for me is Power Girl's face looks really kind of goofy. Yeah. She's like, yeah, you know, but... I, I like the pose of the two of them. I like that they're flying. I like that they're not flying up, which would kind of always usually be. I think of like the the kind of stereotypical flying covers, flying up towards the title. Mm-hmm. Here they're flying sideways. Uh, I love the uh, the the things that tie it so much to the '80s. The Who watches the Watchmen tag. <laughs> uh, I always love the the square, the little rectangle uh, price box on those 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 uh, '80s DC books. I don't know why. I, I guess I. I got into DC late, so I'm, I always I never bought any D, DC books in the '80s. I only bought them as back issues. So to me, that's just neat. I don't know. I like the cover generally, though. Angie and I were talking about this cover earlier, and as much as I like the Hawkman Hawk Girl or Hawkman Hawk Woman dynamic, and the the fact that they are lovers and partners and sidekicks for each other, um, I like the idea of Hawkman and Power Girl as a couple. Like mm. that that would be a very like fun. A fun because they're so sexualized in their own way. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, Power Girl, especially post crisis, with what they did with just accentuating the cleavage and giving it the boob window and everything, and how how sort of just like pinup girl she became, and Hawkman with his bare chest, he's like the macho alpha bar- like caveman. Mm-hmm. That I see if those two ever hooked up, it would just be really loud and it would destroy all of the furniture in the room. <laughs> and that's that's it. That's all I think. I just, yeah. Yeah. So that, that would be my my vision of them as a couple. It would last like five minutes, but it would be passionate and explosive. <laughs> so. Yeah, I hate to be the downstairs neighbor for that. You know, you got <laughs> get the broom, knock it off up there. <laughs> All right. Do you want to tell our listeners the origin of Hawkman? Sure. The writer was credited as Roy Thomas. The art, pencil artist is Luke McDonald. The inking artist is Tony DiZaniga. Mary DiZaniga, the letterer. Carl Gafford, one of my favorite colorists, is the colorer. Robert Greenberger was the coordinating editor. And there is a note on the first page that is adapted primarily from the story in Flash Comics number 1, January 1940, by Gardner F. Fox and Dennis Neville. In Manhattan, Carter Hall, who is uh, – in this in – this, we don't really know what he is here. He's just kind of a student of antiquity. He's using his anti-gravity belt from the anti-gravity ninth metal that he in somehow invented to read his books uh, at the top of the bookshelf. And uh, he says this is kind of a waste of his time. And so he, he sits back in for a, a night of quiet study when he gets a delivery. And the inside the package is from one of his friends – who is uh, an archaeologist who always sends him interesting pieces before he sends them off to the museum because Carter is a collector of antiquity. And he opens it up and finds a, a ritualistic dagger. And as soon as Carter touches the dagger, he gets dizzy and sleepy, and he falls down in his chair and begins to dream. And in his dream, he is no longer Carter Hall. He is now Prince Khufu, and he's being whipped by a large Nubia named Kolar at the direction of the evil priest 
half Set. And Set is torturing Khufu. He wants to know the secret location of all of Khufu's forces because half Set is now is a priest of where is it? Uh, it's not Set, it's Setek? Yeah, Setek. I always think of Sutek from uh, the Puppet Master movies. (laughs) And uh, so Prince Khufu is not having any of this, and he fights his way off, and uh, uh, Half-Set runs and calls for the guards. But Khufu manages to uh, hijack a chariot and escape, and he finds the hidden refuge where his lover, the Princess Shayera, and all of their forces are holed up. And uh, they, they say that... Uh, you know, that, that if they die, they will die together as lovers and they will always be together. And right as they finish up with that fateful statement, all of Hasset's forces arrive and uh, a great battle begins uh, in the shadow of the statue of Oris. Khufu puts up a good fight, but is eventually felled by the superior numbers of Hasset's men. And him and Shayera are brought back to the temple of Anubis, where Hasset has them tied down to the ritualistic altar. He he taunts them, saying he's going to kill them and that he's going to use all their their power. But uh, Khufu says that he also knows the old secrets as well as he does. Hasset is tired of Khufu's crap, and he breaks out the ceremonial dagger, and he uh, stabs Khufu right in the heart. And as he's dying, Khufu says, I die, but I shall live again, as shall you. And then it is I who shall be the victor. Do you hear me? Half said, it is I, huh? <laughs> and Carter wakes up back in his, his present day of the 1930s in Manhattan. He's having, thinking he fell asleep and had a strange dream, thinking he needs some fresh air and a nice long walk. Carter puts on his walking cap and heads outside, but is immediately met by a panic with citizens of New York streaming out of the subway, saying that the rails have turned bright blue and that arcs of electricity are flashing off of the rails in the subway. And uh, as Carter runs down the steps to investigate, one of the uh, passersby running up the steps runs into him, and it is Shaira from his dream, and he recognizes her immediately. And he says, uh, he calls her Shaira by her name, and she says, I'm Shaira. Yes. Now will you get out of the way? <laughs> and uh, they, they go down into the subway to find the charred remains of the poor victims who were not fast enough to escape from the arcs of electricity. So Carter does the only sensible thing and takes the girl back to his place. Aw, yeah. (laughs) But instead of making his move, he's a gentleman and lets her sleep it off on the couch. So Carter goes in and starts to think. Uh, And this being the 30s, he's probably smoking a cigarette, but DC wasn't going to show us this. And uh, he says that that now this explains his sudden desire to purchase apparatus to trace the source of electromagnetic waves. The crude hawk mask I felt compelled to make after I saw it in a dream. These artificial wings I laced with the same ninth metal as this belt I made of. Still no inkling why I named the stuff ninth metal. And as he – so he gets himself ready and he is now debuts as the Hawkman wearing the familiar costume and helm of the Winged Wonder and arming himself with a quarterstaff from his collection of antique weapons. Uh, The Hawkman jumps out of the window hoping that this will work and at first it doesn't but he gets the hang of it using the belt and the wings to soar above the city and using his uh, device that can track the uh, electromagnetic waves to a, uh, the estate of Dr. Anton Haster, who happens to be known as one of the world's greatest experts on electricity. Now, you would think he would have gone and just asked him about it if he is one of the world's foremost experts on electricity, but let's face facts, this was written back in the late 30s, so let's just roll with it. 
They didn't have time for simple no, procedures. No, I don't got time as that crap. <laughs> Due process? Get the hell out of here. The world's on the brink of war. Yeah. <laughs> I've got my wings and I'm going to go fight. <laughs> it's like every issue ever of Sandman Mystery Theater. <laughs> Which I love. That's not a diss. But anyway, uh, so Hawkman flies up to the estate of Anton Haster and he looks in and sees the doctor and he recognizes him as Hasset, or maybe he should say his modern reincarnation. So Carter busts his way in and uh, Haster recognizes him as Khufu and then says, no, it's your reincarnation. And so he turns his uh, dynamo on Hawkman and blasts him with electricity. But Hawkman turns the table on him, saying that both my quarterstaff and my ninth metal are non-conductors. And then he uses the quarterstaff to smash all of Haster's equipment while Haster beats feet out of there. So down in a hidden subroom, uh, Haster reveals himself still to be worshipping the god of death, Anubis. And I don't think that's right, but, you know, we'll roll with it. It's the DC universe. And, uh, and that he shall have his revenge for Prince Khufu and Princess Shayera one way or another. So he calls forth a ritual, and it sends out this, uh, the, this uh, very sickly, sweet-smelling pink mist that goes through the city, and it goes all the way to, uh, Shire, to Carter Hall's apartment and gets Shayera. And Shayera is taken by it and, uh, and is compelled to leave and calls a cab and leaves. And Hawkman, on his way back to his apartment, discovers that Shayera is missing and so grabs a crossbow and a cloak he made woven with the ninth metal and returns back to uh, Dr. Astor's estate. And so uh, Shayera hires a cab and drives out to the estate, and she stiffs the guy, but he's so <laughs> spooked that he says, I'm going back to Hell's Kitchen where it's nice and safe. And uh, Astor answers the door dressed in his full getup as a half set, wearing his priestly robes and skullcap. He takes Shayera into the, uh, the temple of Anubis and lays her down on the altar. And as he prepares to kill her, who pops in but our hero, Hawkman? And uh, he is having none of that. And so he covers uh, Shayera with the cloak of Ninth Metal to protect her from the dynamo. And then him and Hafset face off with Hawkman using his crossbow. And he says that, I'm turning you over to the police and the charge will be Murder. And uh, so as, ha- as Dr. Haster says, yes, I'll come on quietly, he produces a pistol out of his belt, and the two fire at each other. Haster misses completely, and Hawkman hits him right in the chest with the crossbow bolt, which causes uh, Haster to tumble back into his dynamo, which uh, electrocutes him and starts a fire in the house. And uh, Hawkman takes time to gloat over him, saying, you're through, Haster. You won't even have a ferric victory, since now the subway deaths will be thought just a freak accident. And as he dies, Haster says that uh, Hawkman may have won for now, but perhaps I shall not die. Who knows? And as Haster dies, Hawkman grabs Shaira and flies out of the estate just as it catches fire. And on their way home, uh, Shaira stirs from her hypnotic slumber, and uh, she says, I remember lying down on your couch, but my God, we're up in the air. What's going on? And he says, nothing, Miss Sanders, nothing at all. Just go back to sleep. And so he takes her back to his apartment. And uh, thus is the start of a, of a long and fruitful uh, friendship and relationship and partnership between Carter and Shayera. And there's a great little note here that says, two years later, Carter Hall learned that Dr. Anton Haster had miraculously survived when he and his flying eye returned to plague the wartime All-Star Squadron. Yet even the Golden Age Hawkman and Hawkgirl never learned the full secret behind Haster's mad plan, which is only now being unveiled to their son in our deluxe title, Infinity Incorporated, The End. So now you've got to go buy that book. (laughs) Yeah, or you could listen to Tales of the Justice Society of America, where they're covering all those. That might be uh, 
Even I, better. Well, you know, the thing, the, the only thing about Infinity Incorporated, I don't think I've ever seen any back issues at really in the wild. For whatever reason, I just don't have good luck finding it. So I'd, I'll listen to Mike and Scott talk about it. They know more about that than I do anyway. So I, I got a couple issues recently in a 50-cent bin. I read them, and I didn't care for them. So it's <laughs> just it, – it wasn't my thing. I, I like any series on Baxter paper, so I may just be a <laughs> – that's a shoot. I love Baxter paper. You could drop a bomb on it. That stuff would still look good. But I digress. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, thoughts on the issue on the story? What I thought was interesting about this is that it's so straightforward. I was not surprised at all rereading this that this was Roy Thomas and just telling a very straightforward retelling of Hawkman's origin from Flash Comics number one. Now, understanding that this being the what, – what was this, 1987 that this came out? Uh, this would have been still, yes. Or, and, and, uh, it was co- yeah, cover date, February, yeah, cover date of February 87. So November 86. So you're looking at that point that, you know, I don't think DC had really reprinted flash comics. Number one in any, I mean, maybe like a special here and there, but it wasn't like you could go down now. I've got here, my hardcover golden age, uh, Hawkman archives, mm-hmm. go down to your comic shop and pick it up. So in this sense, this does a very good job of telling Hawkman's origin, the golden age Hawkman or- origin for a modern audience when to get that book would be almost impossible for most readers in 1986 to go down and pick up a copy of flash comics. Number one at a reasonable price, you know? Yeah. In that sense, I thought it does a very good job of it. It doesn't seem to add much to it, but you know, it, it's it's kind of a double-edged sword when you when you stick so closely to your original story. You, that's true, and that that was something that Roy Thomas did a lot. And I actually noticed in this one, he I mean, he didn't change any of the real story points. Mm-hmm. He changed a lot more of the dialogue. He kind of uh, like modernized it a little bit, or just explain some things a little bit better or sometimes over explain them to their detriment i think and i'll get back to that but it, like if you compared this to flash comic to the flash story mm-hmm. which was in the same issue that he we did in uh, issue nine that one is much more of a copy job mm-hmm. um, I, I think he took a little bit more liberties with this one than he did with some of the others where he just outright copied all of the dialogue too yeah um, this one there are a few more deviations and he he gives some of the scenes a little bit more time to breathe, but it, but ultimately, like you say, he doesn't change much of the actual story. Mm-hmm. It, no, it no, really it's the same is. Thing. Yeah, it really is just a retelling. Which I'm, you know, it the the or the golden age origin of Hawkman didn't really need a lot of fixing. You know, it was it was very straightforward. A, a discussion that Scott Gardner and I have had once is that he said he didn't like about Hawkman was that they talk about that reincarnation stuff all the time. It's all about reincarnation. And I said, well, you know, when you get to the modern volume four stuff by, by Jeff Johns, yes, reincarnation is very important. I said, when you look at the golden age Hawkman, really, it comes up like once or twice. Yeah. It really doesn't come up much other than in the, you know, they say in the opening tag, reincarnated from the Egyptian Prince Kufa. You know, that's fine. But the story's really there. There's just the setup for it. But it gives an excuse for why this guy looks so archaic, yeah. even as colorful and, you know, uh, diverse as the, the, you know, the all-star comics, the Justice Society crew looked. When you get right down to it, there's a lot of colors involved. There's a lot of different thoughts. There's guys wearing shorts. There's guys wearing long pants, you know. Mm-hmm. Hawkman doesn't fit into that. And then you take that character and you put him in the Silver Age, and he really doesn't fit into that, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But, it, but ha- tying him to, you know, hallowed antiquity is a good enough reason for him to look like he's from hallowed antiquity, you know. 
there, there's a weird little disconnect between the between the resurrection angle and the reincarnation angle in this story that I think. Um, so Hathset in ancient Egypt was a priest and obviously commands some kind of mystical powers. Okay, we get it. He's reincarnated as Anton Haster, this very powerful guy who's the leading authority on electricity and this form of energy. Okay, so we're, we've brought him into the modern world and we've just sort of updated. His power isn't magical, it's technological. Okay, mm-hmm. that makes sense. Arthur C. Clarke would be proud. Yeah. But with Hawkman, okay, he's reincarnated, but he doesn't make the leap to a more modern, conventional type of character. Mm-hmm. He's not using a jetpack or a ray gun like Adam Strange. He's still based on this archaic design and this archaic weapons. So I felt like that was a, a weird little difference between that. Yeah. Like, yeah, the and and you could say that he uses a, uh, advanced technology with the ninth metal, right? But that what would they would eventually do with the ninth metal is that it was from Thanagar, mm-hmm. and so it's an alien artifact. It's an ancient alien artifact when you get down to it. So that's really not technology. You know, it's 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 one of those things where it's like I you know I, I think that Gardner Fox wanted to write this character that used old fashioned weapons. It was kind of like this pulp mm-hmm. style hero, mm-hmm. and this was a way to to do it. it. It certainly doesn't fit. One of the you know, and opinions do vary on what Jeff Johns does with the character once you get the JSA and then Volume Four. I for one tend to really like it. I know a lot of people do. I know a lot of people don't. And and whatever your opinion, it, it's perfectly valid. But one thing that I think a lot of people do appreciate what Johns did was he filled in kind of the gaps in the idea of the reincarnations happening over and over again. Yeah. And tied Hawkman and Hawkgirl and Hasset to, um, you know, characters from the DC, DC mythos like Nighthawk and Cinnamon. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, um, there's a few others in there as well that were previous reincarnations. So the idea gets a little more the, the idea of, okay, well, they're destined to become heroes and to meet and to fall in love and then destined to be killed. So it, that ties in very nicely with what uh, what Gardner Fox did and what, what Roy Thomas does here in that, okay, there's a situation that's going to force Carter's hand to become a hero. And right as that happens, he meets Shiera. Mm-hmm. And they fall right in with each other. I mean, he doesn't think anything about taking her back to his place. And she and she's okay with it. Understanding that this was the 1930s, but she still could have slapped him and called him a gorilla and told him to go pound salt. But, you know, I, I think even it's not there. It's not there on the page, but I think it's, it's pretty clear reading it now after the, the weight of all the, the Golden Age style stories that we've gotten from this that it's clear that she recognizes it also. Mm-hmm. I talked about the last time I was on here that I, I like stories about redemption. I also like stories where people can be connected and not just in a negative way. You know, that in, in so much of comics, the only relationships that people have is a desire to get revenge on somebody else because of something. Whereas, you know, uh, Carter and Shaira are that rare thing, kind of like um, the elongated man in Sue Dibney, that they're, or even Green Arrow and Black Canary in certain, uh, certain timelines, that they're uh, a couple that are heroes that are also loving and devoted to each other. Mm-hmm. And that always, that, that always warms the cockle of my cold, dead heart, you know? <laughs> I, so maybe, maybe I'm the obvious one. I don't know. But <laughs> I liked what Jeff Johns did in JSA and when they brought him back and the new Hawkman series, the, what, at the time? The volume Hawkman 4, Volume yeah. 4, yeah. I thought that was, at the time, it was a necessary step to fixing what was a mess. Yes. Um, and I, so that I mean, not, it wasn't, it was only a few years before that, you know, when Grant Morrison was doing JLA. Yeah. 
And he said, I want to bring in Hawkman. <laughs> and they, and they said, and DC told him on no uncertain terms, you are not allowed to use Hawkman. They said, right. <laughs> I think they said that the they, character it, was toxic. It's toxic. Yeah. Exactly. So that, that's how we got Zoriel mm-hmm. as, as kind of the, the stand in for Hawkman. In fact, uh, it was, is it, is, I forgot who it is. It's one of the original JLRs. When he sees him, he goes, Carter or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. I, I, it's been a while since I've, I've read that, but uh, yeah, I mean, so it definitely was. And you could the thing about the thing about Johns and Hawkman more so, I think, than some of the other like Green Lantern or even the Teen Titans or the other books that or Aquaman, the ones that Johns has taken these characters that may have fallen kind of into disrepair and and built them back up. Again, whether whether you like or don't like what he's done with them, one of the things that I've always thought about Johns is that it's clear that he is doing this because he loves these characters. Mm-hmm. To hear him talk about Hawkman, he loves Hawkman yeah. from when he was – it's clear that it was something from when he's from his childhood. He loves Hawkman, and I can identify with that. Whether we agree, disagree with what he does, okay, those are creative decisions, but I think he's coming at it from the right place. And – in a way, that's what Roy Thomas is doing here. I mean, I think Thomas's love of the Golden Age is well. I mean, I think just about anybody of a certain age as a comic book fan knows that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'll never forget the first time I was reading the Kree Skrull War in the pages of Essential Avengers, and it gets to the middle, and then there's this whole thing with the invaders. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, that was nice. Can we get back to the Cree and the Skrull part now, Roy? <laughs> I like the wizard as much as the next guy. but So, so I think that's, that's pretty much what it is here. Roy is presenting this story kind of as it was, only just kind of updating the dialogue here and there. And as you say, kind of fleshing things out a little bit. I think because he probably has a lot of affection for the original story and didn't feel it needed to be changed much. Mm-hmm. There are a few instances where he does make some changes. Like um, he adds a little bit of padding to the beginning of the story. For instance, mm-hmm. we see Carter already has the before it was nth metal, the ninth metal belt, yep. and, he, and he uses that to float around his townhouse <laughs> so that he can read books on the top shelf. At least he admits it's a terrible use of it. <laughs> so I'll give him that at least. Yeah. <laughs> um. Uh, it's he name drops this character, and this was from the original story in Flash number one. That he he got this package from Jim Rock, who mm-hmm. is this uh, this associate of his, this archaeologist. Did that character ever come back again? Was that character ever I've, shown? I I want to say, and I, and I I may be a hundred percent off base that this is something that happens in All Star Squadron. That that's a character that Thomas used in that series. Hmm. I don't okay. remember that character. I, I've read quite a lot of the Hawk stories from Flash comics, and I don't remember the character showing up in any of the Gardner Fox stories. Yeah, and I, I certainly don't remember that character in the Silver Age or Bronze, even into the modern stuff. But I want to say that that was that 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 because it's such a specific thing, right? That he drops the name. That it almost seemed to me like this has got to be something from All Star Squadron or or maybe Infinity Incorporated. Well, yeah, that, that's a detail that Gardner Fox wouldn't think twice about. He'd just throw this out of name. But yeah. Roy Thomas, being what he is, would never right. let that drop. He would have to t- do something with that name. And I do want to mention just briefly, because I remember when this came up on the Fire and Water podcast, when they, were, uh, they did their Who's Who, and they covered the Golden Age Hawkman, the idea of the ninth medal mm-hmm. versus the nth medal. The, the name the ninth medal comes from there are seven medals of antiquity which are iron, copper, lead, tin, silver, mercury, and gold. 
Okay. And so the idea, those were the seven common metals of antiquity. And so the idea that the ninth metal was, you know, beyond those, that's how rare and unusual it was. I've heard different ideas for what the eighth metal might be. <laughs> Plat, uh, platinum, antimony, or antimony, I guess it's pronounced, antimony, a couple others. But the idea that this was... Death I go with thrash metal or power But anyway... Uh, but the, uh, so the idea that again, this this podcast and go watch Metalocalypse. (laughs) And we're back from Metalocalypse, (laughs) but, uh, but the idea again, that it was something from ancient times, that it was an antique concept and it it's it's called ninth metal for a good portion of the the silver age stories it becomes nth metal or excuse me a good portion of the golden age stories it becomes nth metal in the silver age and just kind of sticks because it makes more sense than carter kind of just magically coming up with this mm-hmm. the way that this is eventually retconned in the hawk world annual is that Perrin katar who is katar hall's dad and he comes to earth and he is a contemporary and a friend of carter hall and shiara sanders and he gives them the, the nth metal. And that's how – basically the idea is that without the nth metal, Carter would not have been able to build his flying harness and become Hawkman. But without Carter becoming Hawkman, Perrin Katar doesn't go back to Thanagar and start the wingman. So it's this little symmetry between the Golden Age and the Silver Age Hawks in, in that sense. Uh, but that, that was much, much later down the line. Like I said, that was the Hawkworld annual, which is the one that, that starts all the rebooting in Hawkworld. Uh, but you know it, it, that. So it, every time you see the ninth medal, it always immediately takes me back to reading these old school stories from Flash comics. You know, mm-hmm. looking at page ten of the story when Half Set kills him and like strikes him down when he stabs Prince Khufu. Yeah, the art doesn't show the knife going into his skin. It, it like sort of he's he's swinging down outside of the panel. And then we cut to seeing Khufu stabbed. That's, that's an interesting art choice. I was like, maybe in the original comic they couldn't show him being stabbed. So I went back and looked at the first story, and no, it's yep. obvious. Like, Dennis Neville showed him being stabbed right in the heart. Oh, yeah, the Golden Age doesn't play around. Yeah, so, yeah. so that made me curious. I was like, why would Luke McDonald kind of pull back from this and, and frame the, the images like that so that we don't see the knife going in? We just see the hand coming down and then... Khufu is bleeding out and giving yeah. his last strange curse that he levels on them both that yeah. he will be resurrected and then or he will be reincarnated and so will his murderer just so that he can have revenge in the future. <laughs> yeah, I I noticed that too and and like like I said in the golden age they didn't shy away from violence like that. I mean up into the 50s and the the formation of the comics code they you know they just read pick up any EC comic whether it's a horror horror comic, a war comic or a crime comic and they'll be worse than that, you know, four pages into it. But so I, I I'm not really sure. The only thing I could think of was again, like I said this was a code book. And maybe Thomas was kind of being coy about it and directed him not to show it. I don't know. That's completely speculation. It it is. I mean, this is the um, a couple of pages later. Again, we don't get to see them actually getting hit with the electrical arcs, but we got four fried corpses on the floor of the subway. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't know if. I mean, I don't know if you have any uh, familiarity with what an arc flash will do to you. 
But, you know, I mean, I'm an engineer by trade. So for we have to work, you know, know our safety regulations and all that and do our safety training. Arc flash training is horrific mm-hmm. because they show you the burns that you will get from, you know, high vo- medium and high voltage arc flashes. So I know exactly what these what these people look like. And that is that is nasty. So it's like, you know, but we're going to show that, but let's be coy around stabbing a guy with a sacrificial knife in a part of the story that we know has to happen because we know who Hawkman is. Right. I don't know. I guess, I guess it's, you know, electrocution doesn't, doesn't shock people the way getting stabbed does, I guess. I don't know. Uh-huh. Um, on, that, on the same page, on page 12, where we see the, the shocked victims a little bit later, here is where Roy Thomas adds something and it subtracts from the story. Carter puts Shira in the taxi and gives his address, 88 Rimble Road, and he tells her, I'm taking you to my place, Shira. I've got a story to tell you. And then we cut to back at his apartment, and he's finishing up the story. That's a natural break. That's a natural Mm -hmm. transition. We get that everywhere. Characters are going to tell us a story that we, the audience, already know, so we cut to the end of the story at a different location, and we understand that they have been telling the story within the story. So mm-hmm. we know what's going on. And that's how it plays out in the original version. Right. But in Roy's version, in Secret Origins, he adds this thought bubble. No use. She's too terrified to listen just now or to protest. <laughs> okay, so let's look at the second part of that. No, she's too terrified to protest. Okay, that, that could go back and explain why she didn't slap him and say, I'm not yeah. going to your apartment. I don't know who you are. You, you just yeah. grabbed me on the subway and pulled me down and showed me some dead bodies. I'd, I'd rather go to my home or my boarding house or whatever. But but the other part of that is he says she's too terrified to listen to the story that he has to tell. Mm-hmm. Cut directly to the transition, and he's telling her the, the end of yeah. the story. So he's yeah, like, the, she's not listening, but I'm going to talk to hear myself talk or what? The, like The only way I can think to no prize it is he does say she's too terrified to listen. Just now. So maybe in like two blocks, she's like, okay, I'm ready to listen now. I've, <laughs> I've calmed down enough from, <laughs> from the horrific images of the earlier in the evening. Because she does answer him because he says – he asks her about the dreams and she says, yes, only, only I thought they were just nightmares. Okay. But, so, but this is my point. The original version – needed no no prize to explain right. it. Roy adds a line of dialogue that requires you to scratch your head and say, okay, well, why does this make sense? I can only imagine that he was trying to explain exactly what we've been talking about, why she goes with him back to his apartment. And unfortunately, his explanation only makes things more confusing. <laughs> it did, this is a common trait with Hawkman. We're going to explain something. Oh, no, it's worse. Right. Yeah, and if you <laughs> Why going- did you just leave it alone? <laughs> And he doesn't explain why Hawkman was like. We needed the if you build it, he will come. Scene the, yeah. like the voiceover. Why Hawkman has just decided, or why Carter has been like, I've been having these weird dreams. I'm gonna make a machine that detects electricity, and I'm gonna make a hat that looks like a hawk <laughs> and a pair of wings. Now but, that that the helmet is one thing that is visually different, because if you go back to Neville's original mm-hmm. in Flash Comics. Hawkman's helmet went through a couple of iterations because they, they kind of settled on the, the what we recognize yeah. as, as Hawkman's helmet with the wings on the side and the beak and the eyes that he's looking through. The helm, it really is kind of like a hard hat. It sits on top of his head mm-hmm. and, uh, and the, 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 the bottom part of the beak goes right to the forehead in between his eyebrows. And it looks kind of doopy. 
to be honest with you. I never liked this, and I'm glad that that when Moldoff got a hold of it, he started changing it. I do like that McDonald keeps the little red tongue. Yeah. Because that was something that even all through the, the Golden Age that they generally depicted it with the little tongue. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it kind of got lost a lot of times in the art, but it's there. It, it shows up a lot. So I thought that was nice. But yeah, if they really wanted to make it accurate, they should have put him with the, the hat over his head. Mm-hmm. But it just doesn't look good. You know, I'd rather – if you're going to revise it, revising it to that makes more sense, you know? Yeah, my favorite version of the, of the helmet is – it has the upper part of the beak that comes down like a crooked nose. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't have the bottom beak. You just let his chin be that that portion of his head. Mm-hmm. And it has the wing sort of fanning out to the side. Like, yeah. Like I, Joe Kubert and Rags Morales, who did mm-hmm. most of Hawkman Volume 4. I don't think anybody has drawn Hawkman better than those two guys. No. The only – I mean, I personally am, am partial to Jan Dersima. Just because being introduced to the character in a modern sense in Volume Three, yeah. But yeah, no, actually, but, yeah, that helmet was pretty much the same. Yeah, yeah, but no, but you're right. Especially the the classical Golden Age look, the green and red and yellow. Mm-hmm. Nobody did it better than than Kubert. I mean, Rags was a fan. Rags remains a fantastic hawk artist. But you know, I I, I am such a fan of Joe Kubert's Hawkman stuff, and and part of that I think is because Kubert drew him like Tarzan. Mm-hmm. He drew him like an adventure hero more so than a superhero. Right. You know, a superhero artist like uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be, praise be his name. And he draws him like a superhero. He still looks fantastic. But the way that uh, that Kubert uh, that drew him like a, a hero of lore, you know, he, he it almost – I don't know if you've ever read any of Kubert's Tor. That's his caveman uh, mm-hmm. book that he's mm-hmm. done at numerous different ones. And he always reminded me of that. He was a guy that – uh, he he was uh, he, he didn't belong in the modern age kind of thing, yeah. you know. So, but yeah, but I mean, McDonald does a, a great job. I mean, that full height panel mm-hmm. on page thirteen where we see Hawkman for the first time and he's holding the quarterstaff, and he just, you know, McDonald always did kind of that trim. He his guys weren't bulky, you know, generally, yeah. but these were really trim and muscular. And I think he looks fantastic here without looking um, over the top. Yeah. You know, he looks like a dude that you don't want to mess with. Yeah, I do too. I I think McDonald's art in this is really really good. Um, I actually I looked it up in the All Star Companion Volume Four. Uh, Roy Thomas admitted, and it was no disrespect to Luke McDonald, but he said his first choice was he tried to get Joe Kubert to draw this yeah. story, and Joe was unavailable. And then Roy tried to get Joe's sons, either Andy or Adam Kubert, who were both kind of coming around at the same time, and one reason or another, neither of them were available. And I think it's because he said at the time their style was very similar to their dad's. And I, yes. I, I didn't really notice those guys until they joined the X-Men books right after the guys left to go form Image. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I always thought they, their style was much closer to the Jim Lee and the Image house style. Right. Um, but I, I haven't seen enough of their art from the 80s. When was that Adam Strange series? Was that in the 80s or was that later? I want to say that was in the 80s, but I'm not, I am not sure about that. Where's Professor Allen when you need him? He would know that. Well, this looks like a job for the internet. <laughs> but if you're going to do a, a story of the Golden Age Hawkman's origin, you can, I mean, obviously... Uh, the Kubert Adam Strange one was 1990. Okay, so close enough. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not familiar with that series. Like I said, I, I, was, not a DC, I was not a DC guy, really, mm-hmm. until... I mean, I read Flash like all through the 90s and, and right up until today. I'm still reading Flash. Mm-hmm. But I was never a DC guy. I was always more of a Marvel guy. So, yeah. you know, when I when I started, 
getting into DC in the 2000s, and when I, especially when I started doing Being Carter Hall, I discovered this whole other set of parameters and rules that you had to know if you were going to be a DC Comics fan. I'm like, what? I don't know any of this. It's like, oh, you don't know that? Pfft, no, but I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> it's like, I didn't realize I was supposed to hate the outsiders. I, I'm sorry, I'll just... <laughs> and I... And I keep I, – I am the exact same way and I keep bumping up against these rules. Like I just read the, the new Teen Titans story, The Judas Contract, and I hated it. It was such a boring story. And you know, Ryan, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I, I picked up the I, – I was very excited. A couple of years ago, I have two really good used bookstores here in the upstate of South Carolina. And I found a copy of the old, the original Judas Contract trade paperback for like three bucks. Mm. And I'm like, oh, I got to get this. And and I read it, and I was like, oh, okay, that wasn't all that great. But and, and you know, and I tried to be honest. I said, okay, the art is good. I'm not gonna. Nobody's gonna deny that. You know, mm-hmm. Perez art is is good. You know, wh- wh- again, whether you like the, the the designs of the characters or not, that's that's taste. I mean, I happen to like Jericho, so what do I know? <laughs> and it's weird because I'm like, okay, well, I can see where. Where Wolfman's going with this, it's he's doing a slow burn, and I understand, I know the twist, so that kind of hurts it some. And so I'm like, okay, well, m- maybe I'm, maybe I can't give it a fair assessment because I know that what's going to happen, right? I know the big beats of the story. I've seen it adapted on the Teen Titans cartoon. It's kind of common knowledge if you're a DC fan of a certain age. So it's like, okay, maybe I'm not being fair to it. And I'm like, you know, so I got the thing. It's like, okay. So in my mind, I was thinking, okay, well, what's the book that New Teen Titans is always paired with? It's Uncanny X Men. I'm like, okay, so a couple of years later, I find at the same used bookstore, The Dark Phoenix Saga, for like seven or eight bucks. Yep. So I picked that up. I've never read it. I've, I've read a, you know, bits and pieces of the Claremont X-Men, but you know, my, my ex-book growing up was Excalibur, so I'm more of an Alan Davis yep. type of guy. You know? So I get it, and I know this story too. Mm-hmm. And that trade paperback features the whole thing in the Hellfire Club, and then Gene going bananas, and then you know the fight on the moon, and all that, all that stuff that was adapted on the X Men cartoon. Yep. You know that that is Marvel fans know the stuff in and out. And I found myself tearing through that book. So I, for whatever it is, the new Teen Titans just doesn't grab me the way that it does a lot of other DC readers. And I'm not that is not a value statement. That is a experiential statement. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I say it all the time, especially on – I say this on forum posts all the time. It's like, that's just my opinion. I could be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't take that. I don't like the thing you do as an affront. Right. That's why DC publishes as many comics as they do, guys. Right. You know, I mean, to, to turn this around to Hawkman, I remember during the New 52, I found online no fewer than three separate campaigns to get the Savage Hawkman canceled. I was and, one of those. Well, you know, I hated, I hated the Savage Hawkman. I liked Savage Hawkman, even though it had it had a lot of problems. I don't think anybody's going to deny that. But some of the logic behind it was like, oh, well, because they're publishing Hawkman, some other better book is not being published. <laughs> I'm like, what? That does not make sense. If you don't like Hawkman, don't read it. If the book is as terrible as you say it is, it'll be canceled. And lo and behold, it was canceled. So I don't understand that logic at all. It's like if you don't like a book, don't spend money on it. You know, Marvel puts out a ton of books. I don't know what the hell half of them are. Right. I look at them. I'm like, who's in this book? I don't. They're just. It's just amalgam of words now. It, it's like super terrific, happy, fun time Avengers X Men. It's like what? <laughs> and Modok is the leader or something. I don't know, but. <laughs> You know, it, it gets down to like uh, that. That was the joke for a while. Is that you could just put a, any Marvel character on a white background 
and then put an Avengers thing on it and just release it, and you people would believe that it was an actual teaser from Marvel. <laughs> you know, it's like Thanos is joining the Avengers. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, again, I, maybe I, I said it before. Maybe I'm the the obvious and naive one, but you know, it's like there, there's there's a million characters out there, and we all don't have to like the same stuff. And that doesn't mean that we can't find common ground because you know, Siskoid's going to have a field day with this because I like the Outsiders and not the new Teen Titans. No, Ed, but uh, but I'm I'm with you, and like you said, it's it's not a value judgment on the characters because you you could make the argument that every character has a value depending on how they're treated and how they're written or, or drawn, mm. but it's it, it comes down to those characters. A lot of the new Teen Titans characters I just don't care about. I've never I've never found an emotional connection or a, a stylistic connection to mm-hmm. to hit with them. And I actually I found myself thinking there are probably more members of the outsiders that I like and would want to read about than there are new Teen Titans. Mm. I like, I really like Black Lightning and Metamorpho, and I'm pretty cool with Katana. Yeah, but I'm a, see, I'm with a the big... new Teen Titans. It's it's Robin and Donna Troy. Yeah, maybe see, Kid with Flash. Me it's not, yeah, see, I mean, I'm a bit, I'm a huge Wally West fan. Mm-hmm. You know, from between, I mean, he was. To use the internet vernacular, he was my Flash when sure. I started reading the Flash. But you know, but I've also I'm a huge fan of Barry Allen, and he, and Wally is right there in a lot of those Barry Allen stories. Mm-hmm. So I've I've read a ton of Wally West. I really like Wally West as a character, but I just I don't know the dynamic on that team just just doesn't speak to me. Mm-hmm. But that's okay, and that's all right. You know, I mean Donna Troy has never done done much for me. I much prefer Wonder Woman to, to Donna mm-hmm. Troy. Mm-hmm. I like Robin a lot because I like the dynamic of him and Batman because I think they're very unique in the way that they are kind of the prototypical, the way you'd expect a hero and sidekick to run. And in fact, one of the things I do have to say, one of my I, one bit from Wolfman that I actually really loved in New Teen Titans is early on in Outsiders when they cross over, Batman gives an order and Robin countermands him and says, no, do this. And Batman at first is going to say something. He was like, no, he knows better in this situation. He's more used to commanding a team than I am. Yeah. And it, it really puts over both Robin and Batman. Mm-hmm. And that, that is like, okay, that was cool. I like that with that story where they crossed over. Okay, I could get with the flow with it. It's just, you know, it's, and again, it's, it's not, it takes nothing away from the characters or the creators because, you know, Wolfman and Perez have done tons of stuff that I really like. And I like a lot of those characters in other settings. Like I said, I like Jericho. I love Jericho on the cartoon. He's just a big with the big emo eyes and stuff. He was great, yeah. but I wish they would use him on Arrow somehow. <laughs> they could. I mean, I think I think he could be easily updated and yeah. kind of given with all the stuff they've done with uh, with with Deathstroke. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no reason you couldn't bring in, uh, and they even did Ravager, didn't they? Yeah. yeah. There's no reason you couldn't bring in in Jericho as you know just just never explain how his powers work. Maybe right, you right. know. But hey, Hawkman. Is that who we were talking about? Oh, yeah, yeah. Hawkman, yes. <laughs> I was going to talk about Donna Troy marrying Bob Ross, that creepy painter guy. But... <laughs> it's just a happy little bush right here. Be, this bush will be our secret. And if but, you yeah, tell let's... anyone about that bush, <laughs> I will I gut you. <laughs> <laughs> That's the Family Guy reference just for Michael Bailey and Scott yeah. Gardner. So. <laughs> okay. Back to Hawkman. Yeah. Um, did, you, did you have any other thoughts on this story specifically? Like I said, I I, um, I don't know about specific. I, I I like that he keeps the the basic beats of it all mm-hmm. uh, on page. I think it's page sixteen, uh, panel one two three four there, where uh, Carter takes the helmet off after he smashed uh, half set stuff. Mm-hmm. 
that is what he kind of looks like in the Flash comics uh, original. Yeah. And then the next panel when Dr. Haster is looking at him on the view screen. So I almost that that's kind of like intentional or otherwise. It's kind of a nice little nod to the original story. Yeah, the, when he kind of pushes the, it up. Yeah. Yeah, because that, that's that's what he looked like in the original. So I thought that was uh, just a nice little touch. How about I, page I, 18? Oh, yes, with the uh, with Haster as nine feet tall. <laughs> that is, like, I get she's on the stairs and she is deliberately lower than him but that is just a weird perspective shot yeah (laughs) um i I do also want to say and that page is a good example i I said at the top that carl gafford is one of my favorite colorists Mm -hmm. that wasn't me being facetious uh i've been on earth destruction directive i've been going through the shogun warriors series over at marvel and gafford was the colorist for about i'd say about 80 percent of that series and he does a lot of these, like we see here on page 18, the, the red, the single drop of color mm-hmm. that really uh, flashes out. Uh, I'm looking for, um, again, back to page uh, 16, when at the very top, when Hawkman's smashing the mm-hmm. panels, and they get the bright pink and the purple and the red. Gafford always seemed to use these bright, warm colors in action sequences. Mm-hmm. And it, it always looks, it pops off the page to me, especially on these... Uh, these books that, like I said, are not on Baxter paper, that are on newsprint. They really look vibrant. And I think he, it, it, it's a subtle thing. You know, it's not like today where the colorist, you can really tell because yeah. of the computer. Yeah, yeah. This is a very subtle way, and, but it stood out. I really, I, I did appreciate Gafford's uh, contributions to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so I, it's rare that a colorist, again, gets called out except when they screw something up. So when I, when I see coloring I like, I like to at least give credit where credit is due. Mm-hmm. Uh, jumping up to page 17, the next one, with the pink mist that hypnotizes Shira and brings her. Yeah. I think it's Axe Body Spray. Yes. <laughs> that's, the ad campaigns for that work for me, so I, I think that's what's drawing her like siren-like to him. <laughs> um, it's like, there's a douchebag somewhere. I can, <laughs> I can smell it. <laughs> On page 18, it didn't occur to me until you were kind of reading uh, reading the dialogue with the guy getting back, going back to Hell's Kitchen. This is weird that she took a taxi, even though it makes sense. In the yeah. original version, she just wanders like sleepwalks to his castle. Yeah, I mean, they, um, they don't they don't tell us where this is, but I mean, right. they're in Manhattan at the start, yeah. and this is clearly out in the in the the suburbs somewhere. So that's a hell of a walk, right? And I'm from New York, and so I know this stuff. So <laughs> this isn't the Bronx. They don't yeah. have castles <laughs> like this. It'd be funny to figure out. Well, any of the boroughs. I say unless you read Fantastic Four, and then they have castles all over the Upstate. Apparently, sure. sure. <laughs> Knowing how much Roy likes the interconnectivity, I think it would have been a fun little Easter egg if the taxi driver had been uh, Doiby Dickles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting out of here. <laughs> <laughs> I bent me Doiby. <laughs> I, I the next page, page nineteen. I, I really like this whole sequence of mm-hmm. has set. Uh, taking her to the to the uh, the altar to be sacrificed, it almost is like a universal horror movie here. Yes, it very much is. You know, and which it's... which is a which is appropriate considering how much of this is visually very much like the the universal and Hammer the Mummy, right? With all the the rituals and the people in costume and all that. So yeah, it's it's very much the Mummy. It's very much like House of Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of combines a lot of those elements. Yeah, yeah I mean, he even looks kind of like. Um, uh, our death bay, the priest. So it's a nice little t- a nod, but again, that makes sense going back to the original. I mean, the mummy was 1933, I want to say, and the sequels started not, you know, in the forties, but you know, the, those universal movies were, were contemporary at the time that, uh, 
you know, Fox and Neville did the original. So mm-hmm. tapping into those kind of imagery, that would be what you know the, the the general readering population would recognize that as. Oh, that's like that mummy picture I saw. You know, yeah. I don't know why Franklin Delano Roosevelt was the one who saw it, but again, <laughs> <laughs> the very last page with mm-hmm. uh, Hawkman flying her away in the starry yeah. sky. I, I just I want there to be an extra page where she breaks out into bad poetry asking, yeah. can you read my mind? <laughs> oh, it's the, what is it? It's the Mike Bailey theory that any story can be improved with Superman? <laughs> the Superman flies in, and, good evening, folks! You know, it's like, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, and I like it again, uh, you know, we get the... Uh, th- this is a page... Th- this layout... This would have been something for Kubert to do also, considering Kubert's mm-hmm. history with romance comics. Mm-hmm. The little inset uh, moon in the, the last panel of Khufu and Shayera as, as lovers in ancient Egypt. Mm-hmm. I mean, McDonald does a great job. It's not taking anything away from him. It's just, that would have been an interesting thing to see from Kubert, again, given his, his background. Right. Uh, just real quick on the previous page, again, some great colors from Gafford. But also some really, really nice inking here from Tony DiZaniga. Mm-hmm. I mean, take a look at panel three there with, uh, yeah. with, with Hassett in the shadow and half his face is covered in shadow. And we just see the shadow of Hawkman's helmet leaning in on the side. Yep. That's very, very moody little piece right there as, 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 uh, as, as Dr. Haster dies, you know. And it's just a lot. Uh, I, I like if you like, take a look at the, the shadowing on his forehead and underneath his eye. You know, we're we're getting at the point here in the '80s where the printing is good enough that that doesn't become a solid block mm-hmm. that you can see the line strokes. And uh, I'm I'm a big fan of like technical inking, so something like that is very much in the kind of the the um, the photorealistic style, like the like the Stan Drake and uh, those guys that did a lot of the, the the strips from the the '40s and '50s. They've used that the technical pen to put line, line, line kind of thing. You know yeah. that that one really just kind of jumped out just because it's a bright sequence with the dynamo and and the the explosions and the fire, and then we've got this very kind of moody panel set in there. Mm. But yeah, I mean, uh, just this was a lot of fun to read. It's uh, a lot different than the last one I did with you. We were talking about Halo, just <laughs> because. Just because this is um, such a straightforward story, yep. is the Halo one is, oh, and then this happened. Oh, and then this happened. Oh, and then this happened. That's just the nature of how we found out about our origin, you know? Whereas here, this, I mean, this is obviously from a different age. This is a throwback. This is, here's our character. Here's his origin. Come back next month. You know, it's, it's very efficient. <laughs> yeah. It still feels very much of its time in that we've got all of these references we've got us we we have this like mini little interlude in the middle of the story that's set in ancient egypt mm-hmm. where we've got these young lovers fighting and dying being murdered and then all of a sudden we've got a, a villain with all of these weird electrical death traps which for was very sort of modern for of the time but all of this imagery using arcane weaponry and ancient settings it's it's a strange it feels very pulp very mm-hmm. It feels 30s and 40s. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it really, like you say, it's definitely a product of the times. And given Roy Thomas being the one to update it, it's not surprising, like we've said, mm-hmm. that there's not a more modernist take on it. Uh, given what, what, you know, clearly Thomas being a fan, not only of the Golden Age in general, but Hawkman in, in particular. Yeah. Uh, so like I said, th- this was a lot of fun, and, and as I said, it serves its purpose really well to tell you the or- – not just tell you the origin, but really mm-hmm. 
give you the origin of the Golden Age Hawkman without having to just reprint Flash Comics number one, you know, to give it to you with modern art and all that. And taking nothing away from, from Dennis Neville, Shel, I mean, Shelley Moldoff is the Golden Age Hawkman artist, you know, mm-hmm. until you get to Kubert. And most would still associate Kubert more with the Silver Age than with the Golden Age. But McDonald does a fantastic job on the art, and it just – it looks clean. It looks natural. You know, it, it's just a, a really well-rendered and, and put together from a visual standpoint strip. So having you know, Thomas just tell you the story, it, it, it works. It just really comes together nicely. There's not – yeah, there, there's, there's some little things. We, we talked about the, the whole, you know, adding complexity that didn't need to be there. But, uh, you know, I've seen Thomas do a lot, lot worse in that respect. So mm-hmm. I can't complain too loudly. All right, let's move away from this story for a little bit. I just had kind of a few other general questions. Do you look at all of Hawkman's long, complicated history as one character, or do you see him as multiple Hawkmans? You've got to—I think you've got to look at him as, at a minimum, a minimum of three. Okay. Because the Golden Age, and um, now then let's let's for the purposes of this argument end our discussion at before Flashpoint. Okay, let's not worry about the the current uh, Hawkman, which even though that's only been going on, the New 50 has only been going on for what, about four years, three, four years, is already messed up. So -hmm. let's not even worry about that. The Golden Age Hawkman and the the Jeff Johns Hawkman, the the volume four modern Carter, Carter Hall, they're the same guy. I mean, that's pretty clear that that was the intention, that they were the same guy. Um, you know, their, their origins are essentially the same. Uh, their behavior is essentially the same in a lot of ways. So that's pretty clear. I think that's pretty easy to wrap your head around is that, okay, this was the hero from World War, the World War II era. He's been all these other heroes, and now he's back, and he's got a mace, and he's not happy. Okay. And I think that's why that version gained so much popularity, because you really can avoid a lot of the other trappings if you just stick to that. Yep. But the problem with that is that I'm a really big fan of the alien Hawkman. I, I really am. I, I love the Golden Age stories. I love Hawkworld. I just did a read-through of Hawkworld last year, and it, I tell you what, that book holds up yeah. so well because one of the things about it, Hawkworld has a you know, – a lot of people say, oh, it's a very political book. And in a way it is, but Ostrander doesn't beat you over the head with it. He puts it out there and you know, the characters say what they feel, but it's not, it's not like you're being preached at. Mm-hmm. Oh, you need to think this or you're an idiot. You know, that kind of thing. The finger wagging, you know, and, and even then typically uh, Katar and Shayera have completely opposite opinions of things. I mean, there, there's there's scenes early in that where they're being educated about the uh, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Mm-hmm. And, and Shayera laughs at the idea that that people have have rights. She's like, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and, you know, and. and as an American, you read that and you're like, it, it's, it just boggles your mind. It's like, well, of course she doesn't – this is a completely alien culture. Mm-hmm. And, and so Ostrand does a really good job of, of addressing that. But there's really no way to rectify the Silver Age Hawkman and the Hawkworld Hawkman. There just really isn't, unfortunately. Uh, and you know, so, it, so they got to just kind of take them as they are. And that's what I said earlier is like, you know, worry about the present. Don't worry about the past, you know, yep. because – Especially with Hawkman, if you, if you get caught up in trying to figure out, well, how does this work and how does this work? And you're, you're going you're gonna to take yourself out of it, I think, more and, and, and enjoy the story less than if you just read the story and thought, okay, I'm reading this story from Mystery in Space. And at this point, this is this Hawkman. That's why I put the generation tag on that story. So he's like, okay, this is the Silver Age Hawks. Okay, I can read the story and enjoy it. 
Yeah. You know, and not worry about, oh, this didn't happen because Hawkworld Annual said this, and then, you know, this happened in the Jeff Johns run, and that, now it can't happen anymore. It's like, it doesn't matter. Let's read the story and have fun. You know, and, and again, and, and I'm not, I'm, and, you know, it's, again, maybe I'm being naive, but ultimately I want to, I got into Hawkman because I wanted to read about his adventures, not to try and sort out the myriad problems with the continuity. <laughs> I mean, as, as fun as that is, it's much more fun to sit down with uh, either my showcase volume or my archive or, you know, pull a book out of my, my Hawkman long box and read a story about a big dude in wings smashing some poor guy's uh, skull in with a mace, you know. If you can't have fun with that, I don't know what <laughs> you're doing. I mean, I'm, I'll defend Hawkman's rogues gallery. That's how, that's how in bed I am with the character. Oh, yeah, the Silver Age, he's got some really fun... Be- Shadow Thief is one of my all-time favorite villains. Shadow, you know what's great about Shadow Thief is that he is a, here's a guy in, in Hawkman and Hawkgirl. These are two physical characters. Mm-hmm. They rely on weapons to physically attack their opponents, and they, they can't touch the Shadow Thief. Mm-hmm. So that it's, it's just such a basic thing, but it's perfect. It forces and, them to think outside the box. Yeah, and the way that they beat him usually is by forcing him to turn off the dimensiometer or by mm-hmm. tricking him. And so it's like, okay, that really works. And plus the Shadow Thief, I mean, you want to talk about a character that shouldn't work on paper. Or, <laughs> excuse me, but, but shouldn't, should work on paper but won't work in any other medium except animation. It's the Shadow Thief. Yeah. Because it, he, it, the way that he is drawn, you could never do that in live action. You could never have a shadow fall like that, the yeah. way that Hubert drew the shadow thief. You know, it, but you look at it, it's like, of course he's a shadow. You, it's immediate. You understand it. You know, mm-hmm. but even someone like uh, Frank will laugh at me for this. But IQ, I like IQ a lot. <laughs> the idea that he's just some mook, but he gets really smart and builds gadgets to to, to commit crimes. It's like, have did you read at all? It was after. Infinite Crisis, and after one year later, when Kurt Busiek was writing Superman. Yeah, was that when Superman was depowered for a while? Uh, he was depowered for a while, and then they did the Camelot Falls story and the stuff with Chris Kent and all that. There's, I don't know if I read the, all of the Busiek part with that. There's one bit that Busiek does in that where he takes the prankster and he basically revamps the prankster because the prankster was always, you know, kind of like Toy Man Light. Mm-hmm. You know, and so what he does with the prankster is he basically takes him so that the prankster gets hired by other criminals who want to commit a crime in Metropolis. <laughs> and so they hire the prankster to go stage some elaborate prank like robots that throw giant banana cream pies or something. Mm-hmm. That means that Superman's going to be occupied with this from 1038 to 1044. <laughs> You go commit your crime then, well, I, and then you pay me a commission because I kept Superman busy. Yeah. And it's like, that's brilliant because that takes the idea of the prankster and makes him work without trying to make him all hardcore and badass. You know? He's a guy, he's still just a goofball that does these silly things, but there's a good motivation for it. I always thought IQ would be the kind of guy, um, kind of like the, the Silver Age Angle Man. Mm-hmm. Self, that he was a guy that knew all the angles, yep. right? Well, IQ is a guy that gets pl- gets paid to plan heists mm-hmm. for other people. And he's like, okay, here's what you got to do. You got to do this and this and this, and here's a device that you need to do it. Now give me my money. Yeah. You know? That, so it's it's like you were saying before is that I don't – I also subscribe to the theory that there are very few characters that are worthless. 
you just need kind of a creative way sometimes to employ them. You know, Fox and and Kubert always talk about the Matter Master that they purposefully made him a like a dope because if he had, they said if he had any brains, he would he could beat our heroes in one page. <laughs> so it's like so he has to be kind of an idiot for them to you know uh, feasibly defeat the guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but even like the Manhawks and the Lizardcons and um, you know some of the the otter ones like that, the Shrike, you know. The, I think that there's some good stuff hiding out in there. I mean, Shadow Thief is is the best of the bunch of the Silver Age ones. Um, In the modern age, we got, um, uh, what is it? Roderick was a modern reincarnation of Hasset. He he was really cool. Kind of a, I I always, I'm going to totally show my age here from the 90s. He's kind of like a Toyo Harada type from Harbinger. He was always a guy that on the surface, he was this good, respectable guy. He was always pulling all the strings. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and they did stuff with him. They used um, the Tigress, who was the daughter of the uh, the sportsmaster. You know, and uh, Copperhead, Copperhead, Lion Mane, Lion Mane. Yes, Lion Mane's a great one. Yeah. They do some great stuff with Lion Mane in the um, the series that came out. The Tony of Isabella Sh- run. Yeah, the Tony Isabella Volume Two. They do some great stuff with yeah. Lion Mane. Actually, I got I had al- I already had the the Shadow War of Hawkman four part series. I mm-hmm. I picked those up in like a quarter bin. I got the entire four series for a dollar. Nice. Um, and then a few years later, at uh, at a con in manchester new hampshire i got the entire the hawkman special and the whole like 17 issue isabella yeah. run mm-hmm. well i i guess he left it like issue 11 and i think Dan yeah Michigan took over yeah there's and there's one issue i think of action comics yeah that's it. yeah that's and it. i got that one separately but um yeah that's i mean that 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 is a run that starts out really good but unfortunately like you say when isabella leaves it kind of loses focus right and gets a little weird uh, but one character who appears in that, who hadn't appeared in a long time, and now is one of the top guys in the Hawkman Rogues Gallery, is the Gentleman Ghost. Yeah. Another guy that, you know, when you are a physical character, is somebody you can't touch. Mm-hmm. But what Johns did with the Gentleman Ghost was he obliquely tied him into the reincarnation angle. Right. And um, there's an issue of Volume 4 that's a, a, basically a Nighthawk and Cinnamon story, where Nighthawk and Cinnamon run afoul of Gentleman Jim Craddock. And basically because... I think I think Craddock, uh, like he 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 attacks Cinnamon and the Nighthawk kills him and hangs him, mm-hmm. and so now he's because it was Nighthawk who who hanged him. He's now part of the cycle, and now he's trapped and can't move on. Yeah. And that's why the Gentleman Ghost has this mad on to kill the Hawks. And mm-hmm. so you again another character that a lot that I don't think a lot of people forgot about, but then kind of came back in the two thousands, and now a lot of people dig the Gentleman Ghost. I mean, yeah, yeah. I I have upstairs in a still in the box the. Uh, Walmart exclusive two pack of Hawk Girl versus the Gentleman Ghost from the DC Legends toys. Me too. I got that. Yeah. I love how his hat stays on. That's just so. <laughs> I got that, and then a buddy of mine was uh, lucky enough to find the uh, the solo package Gentleman Ghost and get me that because it had the miniature oh. Adam figure. That yes. Came with it. I don't have that one. I, I do have the, uh, the 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 DC Legends Hawkman, the the mm-hmm. Silver Age Hawkman, mm-hmm. and I have. The one that they – I don't think – I don't know if it was still DC Legends, but I do have the uh, the one that is the um, uh, the, Phil, not, the Philip Tan designed one from uh, uh, Savage uh, Pac-Man. Yeah, yeah. That came out later. That was once they once they started adapting more of the new 52 books. Yeah. yeah. See, I see. I, I like I, – I mean, again, whether you love it or hate it, I thought that that figure did a great job of capturing the Philip Tan look mm-hmm. with the organic armor and stuff. So – that that I had to I saw that I was like yeah that's coming home with me thank you very much. Getting back to my other question earlier, like 
I, I come down to this. I prefer the multiverse. Mm-hmm. I prefer an Earth 1 and an Earth 2 at least because a lot of those classic Golden Age and Justice Society characters I think are just as cool and just as unique as the Justice League characters. Mm-hmm. But if you put them on the same timeline and maybe this is just my problem. Maybe this is just the way I think about the characters. It's probably true. But I instantly, if they're all on the same history, then I put them in a hierarchy and I mm-hmm. start ranking them. And my rank always goes to who is the most iconic. Right. And for me, the most iconic Green Lantern is Hal Jordan. So if I could only have one Green Lantern, I would pick Hal Jordan. Mm-hmm. But I love the Alan Scott Green Lantern. Right. And, yeah. I, and it's the same thing with the Flash. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why... I want, even though they they look the same, like I want two separate Hawkman characters. Yes. I want the Justice Society Golden Age Hawkman, who can be what Jeff Johns called the Conan with wings. Right. He's the he's the guy who's like shirtless. He's the rough and tumble. He's the brawler. He's the barbarian. He's just swinging the mace and he's there to fight because he's reincarnated spirit who's just from an earlier time and he's bestial. Mm-hmm. But I also like the alien one the one that's more of more space cop and also more part like indiana jones adventurer right um, yeah. and and that's just a very different personality and i want them to to be separate and mm-hmm. and i think that one you could borrow bits from the silver age and and try to incorporate bits from from hawkworld and what came after hawkworld that volume 4 even if it was just like tweaking the costume and making it more of the black leather, I mean, I I like that look. I still prefer the feather wings to the sil- to the gold metal wings. But like after Zero Hour, yeah, when um, he became the Hawk God, yeah. But but even before that, there was a brief amount of time where he was he basically had the classic Hawkman look, except instead of the green and red pants look, it was just like black leather pants and boots, and he had yeah. like more. Like kind of like a, a little bit of us like spiky pads and stuff like that. And I thought, right, he had the, the the feathered wings because part of the hawk god situation was he got the the wings that grew out of his back. Right, right, yeah, they could yeah. kind of grow and shrink organically. Right, um, I, I know, I, I agree with you completely. I mean, that that's one of the strengths. Always has been one of the strengths of DC is the multiverse, and for whatever reason, getting rid of it, I think, hurt the company in the long run from a storytelling standpoint. I'm not saying that. The idea of the post-crisis universe with everything being on one thing is a bad idea. I'm not saying that at all because that gave us uh, things like I mentioned it earlier, Sandman Mystery Theater, taking the heroes and putting them into a realistic depiction. It also, I mean, it, it of, gave us the concept of the legacy hero. Right. It, it, gonna, gave, it, us, it gave us it gave it, us Wally West being the Flash for a while, it, which, again, even though I prefer Barry, Barry Allen, I've read more Wally West yeah. Flash stories that were awesome. Yeah, and when so. just I mean earlier when you were talking about Jay Garrick, mm-hmm. I was introduced to Jay Garrick as the mentor to Wally West yeah. in the Wade and Brian Augustine run of The Flash. Mm-hmm. And he's great. I mean, every time that he him and Joan show up, they're great in that. And Max Mercury is in it and Johnny Quick and the idea that you're you're just the latest in a long line and it's this it's it's a family affair. Like we mentioned with, with the Bat family or even going into like the Super family or something like that. So the idea of the legacy, you know, we wouldn't have 
Infinity Incorporated, again, whether you like that book or not, the concept of their, their, their children and grandchildren and you know, uh, mm-hmm. the, the people taking up the mantle, it, it really it adds – it's additive. It, yeah, we lost the, the crossover idea, you know, the annual JLA, JSA crossover, Crisis on Earth 2, Crisis on Earth 3, whatever. We lost that, and there's a lot of story poten- storytelling potential in that. Mm-hmm. So if you could find some kind of middle ground – you know, that would really be the best. And I think that's kind of – I think that's what DC has been chasing and hasn't been able to achieve. They, they want that middle ground where they have the multiverse to tell stories, but they want everything to count. Right. And, and I understand that entirely because we've seen it time and time again. Does it matter if it's at DC, Marvel, a third party, wherever? People say, we want done-in-one stories. We want done-in-one stories. And then they put one out and they say, when does the real story start? <laughs> it's like, you know, it's a guy from Simpsons. You stupid kids, you don't know what you want. That's why you're kids, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's, you know, like I said, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm getting on in there, you know, where I'm becoming the crotchety old guy. But I try to temper it and just say, look, did I like the story? Mm-hmm. When I... When I get I, I when I get my box of comics from the mail order every month, after I read them, which ones do I want to read again? And if I don't want to read it again, why am I? I have to look at well, okay, why am I getting the book if I read it and it's like eh, and I put it down. So that's what I try to do with my back issues too. I, I read Hawkman because I enjoy Hawkman. The details of how it all fits together, you know. Okay, fine. If I'm reading the Hawk World Annual, yes, the details of how it all fits together are important. That's the point of the story. But if I'm reading just a random issue of Hawkman from whatever run, you know, know, let's say it's maybe Hawkman and Hawkgirl fighting Mr. Kite from Volume 2, being for the benefit of Mr. Kite is the name of that story, and I I swear to God, that's a shoot. Uh, You know, then am I I entertained reading that story? Did it it fulfill what I was looking for? If so, I'm happy. You know, I'm I'm not – I'm I'm too – I'm too – temperamental to get into, into the games beyond that i think <laughs> uh, well that's a that's a good place to sort of wrap up this discussion um recommended readings i mean if if you could push one one or two hawkman books on new readers what would you what would you push um it, if if you really like the, the golden age one it's pricey but i would say the golden age hawkman archives they only ever did one volume of this mm-hmm. Um, I think it collects one through 22. Yes, one, the Hawk stories from uh, numbers one through 22 of Flash Comics. Uh, the, these run about $50, but they're full color and a hardcover. They're really nice. I would, I would recommend it. Um, I usually get them for cheaper. I think I yeah. got mine for about 20 25 bucks. And these, even, uh, even that, I think I've seen it cheaper. Yeah, the, these, these books are – how do I say this diplomatically? These are the books that your LCS puts on sale on Free Comic Book Day. Yes, that's what because I tend to get them. they don't because they don't move a lot. You know, they're not they're not like the the phone books, which mm-hmm. are more reasonably priced. But it's it's in color and it looks wonderful. I would also suggest um, Essential Hawk or excuse me, Showcase Hawkman volumes one and two collects pretty much the entire Silver Age solo adventures of Hawkman and Hawkgirl. Uh, there, there may be one or two from the Bronze Age that aren't in there when they start getting. It doesn't get as far as like their backups in Detective. Right, but it covers all of their Brave and the Bold, all of Hawkman, Volume One, all of the Adam and Hawkman. This their appearances in like Mystery in Space. I'm a big fan of the phone book format, so I think that's just a great bang for your buck. Yeah. And and if you're looking for something modern, the two books I would recommend is Volume Three of JSA, which is called The Return of Hawkman, 
which is where Jeff Johns and uh, David Goyer bring this Golden Age Hawkman back for the modern age and introduce him to the modern readership and say, hey, this guy's not just that guy that had a cool superpowers toy. Like, this guy's a badass. And then from there, you can go from uh, that into Hawkman Volume 1, which uh, all, pretty much all of Hawkman, but I think like one big storyline is not collected, but pretty much the rest of it is collected. So I would recommend, like I said, JSA Volume 3, The Return of Hawkman, and then the Hawkman Volume 4, just to, you know, especially if if you read this issue of Secret Origins and you like the idea of the reincarnated prince and, uh, you know, the reincarnated princess fighting the crimes of today with the weapons of yesterday, you know. They did actually, I think they released a Hawkman Omnibus. Omnibus, That was by Jeff Johns, basically his... I think his entire run with the character. Yeah, because he goes through, because I want to say Palmiotti and Gray take over in the late 20s or th- maybe the early 30s. I'm not 100% sure. Yeah. But Johns did write the book for uh, several years there. Yeah, he yeah his run was in three trade paperbacks that were six, eight, or nine issues, I think, respectively. And yeah. then, but, but it also, there was a crossover with JSA in there, so some of those are collected, too. Yeah, but yeah, yeah I would, definitely, I would. That's that's those are the books I would recommend. Yeah, I would also say I think they recently reprinted a new version of Hawkworld, the three issue uh, prestige miniseries uh, mm. by Tim Truman. I think that just came out again recently because I went back and reread that not too long ago, and it's just a great crime story. Yeah, um, it, it actually it occurred to me like they've got Gotham on TV, and I know some people like that. I have no use for. It. I, I gave it two episodes, <laughs> and I just this isn't a show that I want to watch. It's why are you why are you giving a procedural set in Batman's world that doesn't have Batman? Um, but <laughs> and they were, it, wait, they, well, I will say this: what if it was called GC, GCPD Central, and it had Montoya and <laughs> now that would work for me. If there was a chance that I might see a glimmer of the right. cape, or Batman right. might show up every five episodes, right? I, I'm just, I'm just teasing. I understand what you're saying. Um, but also, like when when they decided that they were going to give the full season commitment to Gotham, there was some rumor going around that like Sci-Fi Channel wanted to do a show set on Krypton, Krypton, starring yeah. either Jor-El or even Jor-El's dad. I was like, who what, who's asking for the story of Superman's grandfather? Yeah, I was like, if you want to do something like that, do Hawkworld, an alien yes. police procedural. And and I I I think I want to say you put that on Twitter. I, I did. I, I tweeted. And, it. Yeah, yeah. and my response was, if DC fanboys lose their shit <laughs> over Man of Steel is too dark, Hawkworld will make their brains explode. <laughs> it's like you are not ready for the amount of of grime and dirt and darkness that is Hawkworld. <laughs> If you expect all DC yeah. comics to be shiny, happy super friends. The idea and not, was, I'm yeah, not yeah. saying that before anybody takes me to task that I think that people who don't like Man of Steel think that all DC should be super friends. That's not what I'm saying. That was hyperbole. <laughs> I'm putting my I'm putting air quotes up to the mic. That was that was not that was a joke. I feel the need I have to say that so I'm not, you know, uh, I made the mistake of uh, saying that I didn't think Guardians of the Galaxy was all that great on a Two True Freaks podcast, and then I became a pariah for a while over there. So, <laughs> but yes, I, I mean that'd be fantastic. I mean, there's there's so much. The thing about Hawkworld as a miniseries, 
the, the, the prestige format miniseries, there's a lot of stories that are just alluded to. Mm-hmm. We never even see the stuff with Para and Katar, all the stuff with the resistance on downside, the stuff going on, the kind of intrigues inside mm-hmm. the political structure, the intrigues inside the wingmen. That'd make a great like HBO style series, you know, hour long dramatic series like that. And uh, the effects are not so um, restricting because – I mean, yeah, you got the aliens on the downside and stuff, but it's not like you need to show them, like, you know, catching airplanes or something like that. The, the power levels are fairly low, and mostly they just fly and shoot people. Mm-hmm. And you need a little bit of uh, CG and stuff for the aliens and for Biff, you know? Right, right. And one thing, I, another thing I think would, be, would work great, because this seems to be, and I, and I don't have anything em- empirical to back this up, but just kind of an impression, is that shows that have a really strong mythology from the start, mm-hmm. including having their own jargon seem to catch on with the younger fans that like to put stuff on social media. And, and you know, and, and it's kind of that, it's that, uh, that clubhouse, that secret, secret handshake, mm-hmm. you know, the jargon, you know, right. that you wear the shirt and I get your shirt, you know, <laughs> hashtag. So above, so below. <laughs> yes. It's, well, it's like, but, but all of the, all of the Thanagarian slang, yeah, yeah. you know, it's like casted downside or seven hells. And, right. uh, the, you know. the the ancient god that Carter keeps or that Katar keeps referring to yeah um, that sort of like brought brought their golden age to the planet yeah Col- yeah Col- yeah so it's it's all that stuff I think would help it from that standpoint it's like it has this this grand mythology and I think that would that would kind of build excitement among the fan base there it's like you know if if, if you know uh, uh, I said who the, the no Onomar Sin if you know who that is it's like oh crap it's, it's Onomar Sin it's like if not it's like well who is Onomar Sin is he one of the seven devils I need to watch <laughs> <laughs> alright this was a great talk um, I, hey I'm I, always up for talking Hawkman I very much appreciate the invitation no no thank you I'm, I'm so glad that we had, we're on such the same level regarding the character this was this is good this was refreshing yeah <laughs> um Luke, if people want to know more about your thoughts on Hawkman or kaiju monsters or horror movies or really anything, where can they find you online? Well, uh, if you're interested in finding out more about my thoughts about Hawkman, uh, as uh, Ryan so deftly uh, mentioned and I mentioned a few times, my Hawkman blog is Being Carter Hall, which is beingcarterhall.blogspot.com. I don't update nearly as much as I should, but uh, the, the blog did run fairly regularly for a number of years, so there's lots of content in there, and I do try to um, you know, kick my own ass every now and again and get back on the horse of updating that. Uh, my other podcasts can both be found at the Two True Freaks Network at twotruefreaks.com. My main podcast is Earth Destruction Directive, where I take a look at the uh, history and culture of Japanese giant monsters, or Dai Kaiju. The uh, latest episode that just went up of that was a... Uh, I-, I stole a great idea from Andy Leyland and Tom Panaris and did an episode about TV opening themes. <laughs> It's like, yes, uh, there is no one can put out a good idea without someone on Two True Freaks taking that idea and m- glomming onto it. So, uh, And then the other show I appear on is The Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, which is our horror movie and uh, now horror comic podcast. We've started covering some of the original run of the Tomb of Dracula, and we've got more of that coming down the pike. And my brother Jason has now joined that crew as well. So uh, you got five gorehounds for for your uh, podcast dollar over on the vault of starting monster horror tales of terror. And we just finished up covering um, the Friday the 13th series 
And we're just about to finish up covering the Phantasm series. So we've got some new stuff coming on down the line. So if you're interested in horror, please go check those out. Very exciting. I love the shows. As always, it's been great talking to you, Luke. Um, I'll get you back when we talk about Black Lightning. Oh, you know it. Take it easy, man. Yeah, thank you very much, Ryan. Angie's portion of this episode, talking about Power Girl and Arion, was recorded a couple weeks ago. Last weekend, I had the privilege of meeting him face-to-face at Boston Comic-Con. It was terrific. And a little surprising, honestly. He was not at all what I was expecting. So, first of all, he didn't seem all that interested in Supergirl. I kept on trying to talk to him about the TV show and the comics, and he... (sighs) It was almost like he'd never heard of the character. Maybe he spent so much time talking about her on his blog that he just doesn't want to think about her on his free time. But it was weird, I'll admit. Um, The other big thing that I really wasn't expecting, he's black and he's huge, like six feet a lot. Very dark skin, very pronounced accent that I didn't think came across at all when we recorded the podcast. He sounded very, very different in person. It was actually a little hard to understand him at times, but I did figure it out, because he kept on talking about his cousin, who's like the prince of Burkina Faso or someplace, and he's living in exile, and I wanted to talk about Supergirl. Ange just wanted to talk about how if he only had a little more money, he could help his cousin reclaim the throne. So... I felt compelled because he did the podcast with me, and I know he's a busy man, so I wrote him a check for $4,700, and I hope that helped. Ange, if you're listening, write into the comments section and let me know if Achebe got back to his country all right. Okay, let's dive into our listener feedback section. Episode 10 received Twitter favorites and retweets from Anthony Durso, Dr. G, Nerdologist, Greg Arujo, Cord Industries, Stephen Bird, and Trekker Talk. We got a ton of great comments on the WordPress page. As always, I'm cherry-picking the comments, but letting you all know there are worse things you can do with your free time than head on over to secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com and read the whole conversation yourself whilst leaving a comment of your own. First comment came from Rob Kelly using the amazing pseudonym Todd Palin's Goatee, you know, just to remind us all that there was a time when Todd Palin was a thing. Rob was disappointed that among the four thematic song choices for the Phantom Stranger episode, I didn't use The Man in the Long Black Coat. I am just as disappointed in myself, even though I love every one of the songs that I did use, and I stand by them. Jeff Nettleton said, This was actually one of the first secret origins I looked at. Like Rob, I always enjoyed when the stranger turned up in the JLA, though I didn't read any of his own adventures until several years later. That was because Mike Grell was the artist for a crossover with Deadman. He had a cool visual and one of the best capes in comics, which elevated him in my eyes, since I never cared much for magical characters. I passed on this book originally, since it didn't give a definitive origin. However, it grew on me as I got older, much like the stories of DC's mystery books. Uh, interesting that the multiple origins of Phantom Stranger being one of the reasons a lot of people like this issue was the same reason Jeff didn't years ago. That's sort of how Tim Wallace from the Blue Beetle blog Court Industries felt, too. Tim said, I remember picking this up way back when and then putting it down, confused and frustrated. I picked it up several years later and after a second or third reading really appreciated what they were going for. 
The mystery, which is the right origin, are any of them or all of them legit? Does it matter? We all tend to gravitate toward the one story we think feels most like the phantom stranger we see in our mind's eye. Kind of like the blind men and the elephant. Getting back to Jeff's comment, in terms of the A-list talent, DC did a few books like that in this era. You had the big anniversary books like Superman 400, which boasts people like Wendy Peeney, Mike Kaluta, and even Jim Steranko. They really seemed to get one up on Marvel when it came to this kind of stuff in this era. It's probably why this is my favorite decade for DC, since they were willing to try almost anything in the attempt to revitalize their line. Heck, the decade itself is one of my favorite for comics, with the diversity that came from the direct market, heady times, and my rebuttal to those who dismiss the 80s as a horrible decade. Paul Hicks said, I particularly enjoyed this episode given it's the only issue of Secret Origins that you've covered that I've read so far. I'm not sure if the issue would run better with the stories presented in a different order. The Michigan story is the definite outlier no matter where you put it. Well, that's a good point. And Mark Sweeney said, The character never did much for me except as one quarter of the trench coat brigade guiding the young Tim Hunter through the worlds of DC's magical universe in Gaiman's Books of Magic. The stranger was charged with escorting Tim through magic's past, which I found this to be an extremely effective use of the character. Ange said the story by Alan Moore and Joe Orlando worked best for him, with the parallel stories unfolding. He also wrote a review of this issue a while ago on Diablo Frank's DC Bloodlines blog. You can check that out. And Ange said, My first memory of The Stranger was in Brave and the Bold 145, a story by Haney and Apero where Batman and The Stranger fight a voodoo gangster. But my favorite memories, like Rob, are his moments in Moore's Swamp Thing. The interactions with Constantine, the constant discussion of his dusty, worn-out shoes, his banter with Etrigan, so great. Read Swamp Thing Annual Number 2. Fantastic. Moore has The Stranger use wordplay to trick the specter. And The Stranger's hat falls off in that issue. Thanks for the great review. This is an issue well worth revisiting every so often. Well, you're welcome, Ange. Now, just tell me that I'm going to get my $4,700 back, if you could. Ah, okay. Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast said, I hate to admit this, but I've never owned or read this issue of Secret Origins. I blame it on the dreaded newsstand cursed. I just never saw it. I seem to recall a house ad for this issue, so I was stoked to read it. I knew of the hook of the four possible origins. What a great concept for this character. I've had a soft spot for the Phantom Stranger ever since first reading To Kill a Legend by Alan Brenner and Dick Giordano from Detective Comics number 500. The Phantom Stranger offers Batman to save his parents on a parallel world. Now that's an intro to the character. Rob knows his Phantom Stranger for sure, and I'm not just saying that so I don't get kicked off the Power Records podcast. He brought the Phantom Stranger knowledge on this one, and his Alan Moore story was hilarious. Jeff R. said he's been enjoying the podcast... Thank you, Jeff. And he goes on, I sort of wish you'd mention the other great example of the Phantom Stranger Etrigan team from the mid-1980s, the Blue Devil Summer Fun Annual, in which we learn that the Stranger can do the hardest job in comedy, being the perfect straight man. The other thing I'm surprised you didn't mention was how Revelations ties into DC's own deep cosmology, the hand at the dawn of time that figures into the Krona and Pariah stories. Uh, as for the last part about the hand of creation, that's on me. I recognized it and made that connection when I first read the story, but I forgot to bring it up in my synopsis. That's why I count on you guys to catch all the balls when I drop them. 
Michael Kiroskuro said, For some reason, I never started picking up Secret Origins until issue 18 with Golden Age, Green Lantern, Alan Scott, and The Creeper. Even after that, I only picked up another 5 or 10 issues. I can only assume that I only had so much allowance money to spend and was already reading too many monthly books, so my random picks needed to be carefully chosen. So I eagerly await you reaching number 18 so I can hear about the handful of issues I actually own. That episode is going to kick ass, Michael. It'll feature one returning guest host and one who has not appeared on this show yet. Michael calls the talent on issue 10 a murderer's row, the same thing that Ange said in his comments. And then Michael continues, I think Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, is my personal fave of the artists, but I love them all. Aparo is so synonymous with my early comics collecting career. I'll always love him for his work on various Bat books, including Batman and The Outsiders. And the writers here are, ain't too shabby either. Mike W. Barr also penned most of my favorite Batman stories back then, from Batman Annual Number 8 with Trevor Von Eden, to Batman Special Number 1 with Michael Golden, to Brave and the Bold 200 with Dave Gibbons, to my favorite Batman run ever on Detective Comics with Alan Davis, to Batman and the Outsiders with Aparo and then Davis. Plus, he wrote the almost completely forgotten Green Arrow Mini, also with Von Eden on art, I think from 1982 or 1983. Great series. That really needs to be collected. Oh, and Camelot 3000 with Brian Boland. Barr really worked with some awesome artists in his prime. Yes, yes he did. And the Green Arrow miniseries was from 1983. I have such a love-hate relationship with Trevor Von Eden right now, though, because of what his work became in the 90s when he drew Black Canary. And Michael came back for one more comment. How could I forget to concur with Ange and Rob on the Stranger's appearance in Saga of the Swamp Thing being among my favorite iterations of the character as well? That entire run by Moore is one of my favorites of all time, and a huge reason why is just how well he incorporated the horror and fantasy characters of DC's universe into the long-form story he was telling about Swampy. Beautifully done. And for those that have a problem with more now, I would refer them back to his long run on Swamp Thing. It's utterly perfect to me, and full of heart, which I think would surprise a lot of folks who find his more recent works cold or off-putting. You know, I'm just going to throw this out there. Somebody needs to start a Saga of the Swamp Thing podcast. Or if there already is one, somebody needs to apologize to me for not telling me about it. Siskoid from Siskoid's blog of Geekery remarked that this issue was kind of his first real exposure to the character, and then he commented on the sort of running debate about Alan Moore being an old crank. It's very strange, Siskoid said. On paper, he's this monstrous crank, and I always come out of those articles shouting for him to get his head out of his ass, to use Ryan's vernacular. On video, he uses the same words, but he's so calm, soft, and deliberate. It takes a whole other bent. I don't know what it is. Witchcraft? Yeah, probably witchcraft. Episode 10 received Facebook likes and shares from Abel Padilla, Alexander Adrock, Anthony Durso, Arthur Canning, Bradley Austin Null, Burt Barnard, Gautam Shioran, Gene Hendricks, Greg Arujo, Keith G. Baker, Cord Industries, Luke Dobb, Max Romero, Michael Lane, Mythmaking Etc., Rick Hodge, Rob Hull, Rob Kelly, Sean Merrick, Sean Myers, Tim Wallace, and Van Z. Woo! And even more than that, actually, Rob Kelly shared the post on his page, and he got a bunch of likes from people I didn't mention. He also got a comment from Dan Mishkin, one of the writers on Issue 10. Dan listened to the episode and said, So the consensus seems to be that my contribution to this issue comes off better if the reader knows what I was thinking when writing it. Unfortunately, DC has never published reader's guide supplements to their books. 
And he says, I do agree that if this had been touted as the definitive Phantom Stranger origin, it would have been a terrible idea. But the fact that it was only one of four is exactly the reason I felt free to go very far afield from people's expectations. Uh, that led to a short back and forth where Rob and I praised Mishkin for his work on the character, and he reminded us that he also wrote Phantom Stranger in Swamp Thing issues 14 and 15. Man, I'm telling you guys, if no one starts a Swamp Thing podcast after this, we're all just leaving money on the table. Also on the Facebook page, Keith G. Baker and Burt Barnard both called Secret Origins issue 10 one of their favorites. Van Z said issue 10 and the episode that covered it are the most entertainment he's ever gotten from The Phantom Stranger. Gord Tolton said, I have to go on record as always preferring the Bar Aparo tale, perhaps because I'm a bit of a history buff, and I like the background of the historic Jesus used as a turning point in DCU lore, as are other real-world events. I was going to comment on the Silver Surfer Wandering Jew comparison, but you and Rob already touched that. If you were to use the origin in DCU time, it might also tie in some way with the Spear of Destiny, the weapon that pierced Christ that was utilized in the JSA origin story, and as the stock MacGuffin that prevented the All-Star Squadron from assaulting the Axis in the Second World War. I find it odd that these Judeo-Christian-sourced concepts were well-entrenched through the 1980s with virtually no media backlash, yet in 1989, the visit of a time-tossed Swamp Thing... There's that Swamp Thing again, people, I'm just saying. The visit of Swamp Thing to first-century Palestine, and the appearance of Swampy as the cross itself caused the story to be embargoed and the departure of Rick Veach in the huff. Uh, I thought this part was interesting. Gord added... Not comics-related, but I might also cite the Casca novels, as the Roman soldier is cursed to appear in history's greatest battles. They were written by Staff Sergeant Barry Sadler, who you might recall as the singer of the surprise Green Berets pop song of the mid-1960s. Sadler was a bizarre character, as strange as his creations. I had to mention this last part of Gord's comment, because I don't know when else it'll come up. I have no idea why, but I have always loved that song, The Ballad of the Green Beret. It's such a catchy but weird song that was actually one of the most popular and most played songs of the 1960s, which is generally thought of as this counterculture hippie decade. Anyway, that's all for the comments directly related to episode 10. Over on his Facebook page, future guest host Professor Alan Middleton posted about his upcoming appearance on this show, and a few people responded, one of them being Chad Bokelman from the Lantern cast and who appeared on episode 7 talking about Guy Gardner. Chad said the Secret Origins podcast is fast becoming a new favorite, and when I accused him of just buttering me up so he could come back on the show 25 episodes from now to talk about Tom Kalmaku, he said, What I like about the show, besides the content, is that you took the time to set up a format and concept for what you wanted out of this endeavor before you started recording episode one. Too many podcasts start up with a rough idea and flesh it out as they go, which is fine for podcasts that started several years ago, like the LanternCast, but new podcasts have so many other podcasts to compete with. Not starting off with a podcast that seems like the host knows what he is doing runs the risk of people dropping off with the episode one, because they have too many other shows to listen to than waiting and hoping that the show they kind of like will get better. And Chad goes on, by no means am I condemning those who venture boldly into the podcasting world and improve as they go. I'm just saying there is great merit in knowing where you are going before hitting record. And after that, Chad said some nice things about the Fire and Water podcast, which is all crap. But the gist of what Chad said resonated with me, because I do three podcasts. Well, 
Actually, more than that. I've done a lot of guest appearances recently, which is awesome. And pretty soon you'll be able to hear me and Kyle Benning join Aaron Moss on G.I. Joe, A Real American Headcast, which covers the G.I. Joe comic from Marvel and IDW, as well as a few other elements of the G.I. Joe property. The first episode is already out. You can find it on iTunes. It's episode zero, sort of a preview from Aaron about what G.I. Joe is and what it means to him and why he started the show. Starting with episode one, Kyle and I will join Aaron to talk about the comics an issue at a time. I'm really happy with that show. I'm thrilled that Aaron asked me to be a part of it because I love G.I. Joe, but I do consider that his show. I'm not diminishing my part. I'm saying that Aaron is the host. He produces the show, and Kyle and I show up to talk about the comics we love. We're semi-permanent guests, as Michael Bailey would say. We're like the Andy Richter to Aaron's Conan. Now, I don't remember what I was talking about. Oh, yeah, 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 I do. Besides that show, which, again, you can find under G.I. Joe, A Real American Headcast, there's a blog and a Facebook page for it. Just look that up. Aside from that, I do three regular podcasts, and I approach them all with varying degrees of planning. The first show, Dead Both and Spies, a Star Wars podcast, I intended to be one thing, and it quickly became something else. And then it changed again a few episodes later. That show is still evolving and continues to change from month to month. All I really know for certain about it is that I will never have a shortage of Star Wars material to talk about or friends with which to talk about it. Flowers and Fishnets, a Black Canary podcast, I went in with zero plan, not a scintilla of an idea. I was getting to the point where I needed to commit to doing Secret Origins or let the idea lapse. The problem was I wasn't enjoying DC Comics at the time, and I really hadn't been reviewing comics for the Star Wars podcast except for one time. So I made Flowers and Fishnets as a test for myself, an exercise. I wrote, recorded, edited, and published that episode all in like one day. And astonishingly, I got a ton of feedback on Twitter. Because The Black Canary has been such a big part of Arrow for the last two seasons, there are a lot of fans out there of that version of the character. So I got a big look-in audience on my first episode of the podcast. And after that, it just became a review show of comics that were more often than not terrible. This show, though, Secret Origins, was a year in the making. I started reaching out to other podcasters and bloggers months before I even started recording. In fact, half of the first episode with Chris Franklin was recorded twice because I had to make sure that the episode sounded as great as possible. That wasn't the only episode that had to be re-recorded, either. I also spend hours editing every episode to ensure the best quality. I love doing this show. I love talking to the guests, and I love reading your feedback, hearing your impressions of the characters, your histories with comics. It's all so terrific, and... I don't want it to sound like I don't care about the Star Wars and Black Canary shows, like they're afterthoughts. That is not the case. It costs me money to make those podcasts. If I wasn't having fun with them, if I didn't love talking about Star Wars and Black Canary, I would stop. I'm not saying those shows don't mean something to me. What I'm saying is, I went into Secret Origins with the attitude that if I only ever got to do one podcast, it would be this. If I was to be judged on one podcast, it would be this one. And truthfully, it is not because of the content of this comic. Secret Origins is not one of my all-time favorite comic series. The quality is wildly uneven, and some of the stories, honestly, they just plain suck. That is not why I do the Secret Origins podcast. 
I do it for you guys. I know, that sounds schmaltzy at best, but it's true. This show, by design, is a love letter to the podcasting community. That includes the people who make them and the people who listen to them. So when Chad says that he can see how much planning and hard work goes into this show, it's really incredibly nice to hear. This podcast, when it ends, is going to be 55 episodes total, and we're at 11 now, which means the show is 20% complete. I consider every episode a success, and I am just as excited for what is coming up in the future. We have some returning guests, and we have some new voices, some podcasting veterans, and some rookies. You're going to love them all as much as I do. It's not an original line, but it fits. If you've enjoyed this show so far... You ain't seen nothing yet. I'm going to let Kelly play me out, but I want to thank my guests, Ange and Luke Giaconetti, for appearing on this episode. Feedback for the show can be left at secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01 or at blackcanaryfan or the username Count Druncula. If you want to send private feedback for the show that you don't want to post on Facebook or WordPress, you can send an email to blackcanaryfan at gmail.com. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics. The views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and are believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Stand a little taller.